Within the depths of the strip mall of the damned lies a decrepit video store long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders spinning their patient webs. Beyond the ancient batwing doors guarding the sepulcher where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles to scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and dissolution. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We the Lovely. I've brought some cough sweets. Does anybody need a cough sweet? Uh, are you still are, here? Are they organic, though? Oh, I'll have to go to the special store across town. <laughs> Thank you. It's just an extra hour. Oh my gosh, it's fine. It'll it's keep fine. Him busy. He won't be in here. It'll keep him busy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All right. Uh, Fez is on. If there are no objections, <laughs> Fez is on. Fez is on. All fezzed up. All right. Welcome, brethren, to this conclave of the Cinemania Society. Please be seated. And welcome to our listeners to whom I will now issue this warning. We disciples of the Cinemania Society have studied the mysteries of the motion picture and meditated upon the silver screen for many years couple of months for me. Therefore, we have become inured to the films we scrutinize, which may contain hazards unsuitable to young and sensitive ears. As such, we advise anyone listening to do so with discretion. Guard your ears carefully, lest you develop a severe and irreversible case of cinemania. Brethren, we have a new member present at our conclave. This is... <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. <coughs> mm. uh, that's what I get for ripping a bung with the American flag on it. Uh, brethren, we have a new member present at our conclave. This is Brother Andrea, scholar of San Francisco. Excuse me. Uh, hang on. You're damn right. Hang on. I knew we shouldn't have given them the vote. Women? Americans! Be silent, you contemptible old pudding. <laughs> uh, um, uh, we shall henceforth be known as... Uh, we need to get hash this out. It's been too long. I've been saying for weeks. Inquisitors. Inquisitors. Uh, I think we should call, uh, call ourselves Inquisitors. No, no, no. no, no, no. You can call not. yourself a Inquisitor if you want to, but no, 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 just no. Or the Cinemania Society, I think we should just be Cinemaniacs. I keep saying that. You guys want to make this too complicated. It's no, like but we're trying brand. to prevent Cinemania. That doesn't make any sense. If we're Cinemaniacs, we follow be a cowboy. Okay. Cinemaniacs reminds me of that TV show, Animaniacs, and we're not black and white. We yeah, scrutinize and films. Why don't we just be scrutinizers then? But who wouldn't want to call back to Mel Brooks's great film, History of the World, Part One, with the Sinquisition? We're holding a Sinquisition. It makes sense. Oh, dear. Yeah, I'm sorry. My racial memory is tingling at that one. Yeah, nobody Ooh. expects the Sinquisition, right? <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, yep. That's, that's a rough one. Uh, In 
In any case, welcome to our fold, Professor Andrea, scholar of San Francisco. Also present at our conclave tonight are Sinquisitor Ethan, keeper of the lenses. Just through my charges, the truth is refracted. Scrutinizer Zachariah, guardian of the door. I still don't know why I let any of you into this place. Verifier Andy, master illuminator. And glowing softly. Profligator Daniel, possessor of the word. Yeah, and I'm going to need you guys to sign off on all of my uh, expense reports from that trip to Interzone. Uh, we'll get to that when we get to that. I am Repositor Andre, voice from the outer world. I will be serving as Pontifex of Presentment for tonight's subject of scrutiny. Fred M. Wilcox's 1956 science fiction epic, Forbidden Planet. That's the Forbidden Planet. We don't go to the Forbidden Planet. They do forbidden go to the Forbidden Planet. They do, actually, yeah. They went there. there. It's forbidden. What happens on the Forbidden Planet stays on the Forbidden Planet. No, that it's too forbidden. Is there a bidden planet then? Yes. There's yes. also a midden planet, but nobody likes to go there. <laughs> that midden planet is mid. I understand that place is quite trashy. That's the flyover planet, right? Oh, <laughs> except for the flies. flies for <laughs> Truly the Branson, Missouri of planets. Oof. <laughs> God. Wait, you're British. How do you know that? <laughs> I know everything. everyone knows about Branson, Missouri. <laughs> misery, I believe it's pronounced misery. Branson, misery. Mm. This film was the apotheosis of the first golden age of science fiction and has long been upheld as the grandfather of all science fiction films that follow. It was a movie that so tickled Gene Roddenberry's <sighs> Rod and Berries that he created the original series of Star Trek in its image, itself a franchise well-documented as a source of Cinemania. Tell me about it. Other low-budget ripoffs for film and television followed, including Lost in Space, Ugh. And it is fair to say that this film created in the public an appetite for science fiction movies, which to this day has never been sated. This Cinemaniacs is a keystone example of Cinemania. Gasp at atomic super robots being unfailingly polite. Scream at sexual politics that age like old milk in a sauna. Cry at the sight of rare animals being vaporized by the unfeeling rage of Leslie Nielsen. This is Forbidden Planet. <laughs> Professor Andrea will act as Mistress Castigator for this conclave. All right. <clears throat> Charges against this film include Weird 1950s open mouth kissing. Criminal overuse of Brill Cream. Unlicensed cloning of the same vanilla white dude. Failure to do away with the tradition of dorky naval hats with the advent of space travel. Abuse of Swedish modern interior design. Contributing to the delinquency of a robot. Operation of an unlicensed moon hooch distillery. Failure to establish radiation-proof clothing as a standard in feminine fashion. Further endangerment of an endangered species. Going over 30 minutes of exposition in a 15-minute exposition zone. Pandering of pop psychology. 
and employment of futuristic radio parts as phallic symbol when we all know damn well this movie is built on Freudian psychology. Serious trigger warnings include misogyny, abuse of consent, gaslighting, emotional abuse, animal abuse, alcohol abuse, and implied support for eugenics. Im implied? Uh, oh, okay. okay. Uh, Space fascism. Uh, well, you know, I mean, it's sort of like they said, all right, we defeated the fascists in Europe. We can go back to fashion normally again. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's uh, what McCarthyism was all about. <laughs> Well, I'd like to open it up to any additional charges, although that was fairly exhaustive. Nobody's oh. going to accuse this film of having great acting. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Well, well, hang on there. Hang on there. Um, this film did introduce the hardest working robot in all of Hollywood. True. Robbie the Robot is not just a character. He is, in fact, an actor. He appeared in, what, like half a dozen other movies, television shows. He was even in The Man from Uncle. He was in an episode crime. of Columbo, as I recall. No, really? <laughs> One more thing. I, uh, I also have an additional charge of maligning the name of the great band Guitar Wolf by using the cousin Space Wolf's name as a derogatory term. That's one heck of a charge. No, time sooner movie. or later, you're going to have to let Guitar Wolf go. Never. He's, he's never going to let it go. Guitar he's never going to let it down. Guitar Wolf is life. <laughs> yes, oh. but the wonders of our advertisements. There you go. Marvel at their goods and services. I do like your 50s Perfect. announcer voice. We've got to use yes, that song. It is okay. Good. Like we are back, and I'm stuck in this voice. <laughs> Hold on. Oh, okay. I think I'm good now. Brother Methuselah, back I've with those. I've got more cough sweets. I've brought there you the go. cough sweets. Would you like the cough sweets now? About time. Um, it looks like this one contains sugar, so I'm gonna have to pass on it. Sorry. <laughs> While you're out, Brother you Methuselah, do you, can you find me a left-handed screwdriver? Left, left-handed. I, I think I've got one just in, in my box over here. I'm just going to go and get it over. I'm right, going to lock the door behind him. Thank you. So, we have a story of spacemen and the repressed, weirdly horny space ladies who love them against a backdrop of atomic fury and robot butlers. It's not exactly Shakespeare. We are the stuff as dreams are made on. And our little life is rounded with a sleep. What pass is just prologue? It is actually Shakespeare. This, dear friends, is actually a version of The Tempest. Believe it or not. Yeah, I was about to say that. I'm British. I knew that. <laughs> yeah, sure you did. Mm -hmm. No, the, uh, the, this, the Forbidden Planet is roughly based on William Shakespeare's play The Tempest. We have a list of characters that are uh, analogs of other characters. For instance, Prospero is uh, played by Morbius. Uh, Miranda is Altera. There's an island. The island of uh, The Tempest is at... In this, the uh, planet Altair 4, 
Caliban is the monster. Ariel is played by Robbie the Robot. Ferdinand, the love interest of uh, Miranda, is Leslie Nielsen as John Adams. And the entire theme of nature and magic is an analog for technology in this one. But the main way that these two interpretations differ is The Tempest had a happy ending where nature and magic found a way to coexist with the world, where in this, man's hubris with technology and our emotions got in the way and caused the id monster, which causes destruction but i digress a bit yes hubris i was about to say blew up the planet that caused a bit of destruction too yeah i was about to say many themes many themes from the tempest i was literally just about to say that because i'm british (laughs) and i knew all of that uh-huh. We knew that yeah. Shakespeare was far ahead of his time because he was predicting the destruction of a planet through atomic devices, uh, much <laughs> as this film did, yes? Yeah, it's it's not like Hollywood only invented uh, cribbing all of their ideas and not inventing anything original in like the 90s. It goes way back. What's uh, past is prologue. There you go. <laughs> see, oh see? He's going to keep doing this all episode, isn't he? Oh, no. I, I didn't bring my big book of Shakespeare quotes. Uh-oh. I did. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> uh, I'm offended. General... When are you not offended? He's British. It's hard to tell. Uh, I guess any general impressions of the film from the Conclave. We can start with uh, Andrea. Yeah, I don't just... think I'd seen it before, but then we got to the part with the monster going through the fence. I was like, "This is very familiar." I must have seen this at some point. Funny impressions for being a movie during the Hayes Code when they couldn't openly show sex. It was actually extremely creepy <laughs> the way they get you thinking about what could have happened off screen. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, well, there's that, there's that um, swimming scene, of course. Of uh-huh. course. Oh, we're going to have a lot to say about the sexual politics of this film. Oh, oh I bet. Um, yes. So, so I will say I actually, I've seen this movie numerous times. Uh, my dad actually brought it home for us on, on VHS when I was, I want to say six, we had literally just seen Return of the Jedi in the theaters. And he thought, oh, these kids, they really like science fiction. And this movie, would you believe it or not, scared the hell out of me. Uh, me too. Right? Right? And almost you exactly too? the same thing at when I was a kid. Yeah, my dad. Uh, the only difference was my dad brought it home on Betamax because that's what we had. Oh, um, oh psh, <laughs> Betamax. That's, that's the that's... forbidden format. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was almost exactly the uh, the same scenario. We went to go see Return of the Jedi. We came home. My dad's like, "You like science fiction, huh? Let me show you this film that I watched when I was a kid. It just came out, special edition on." And we watched it and I had the same impression. It got to the whole like melting door id monster attack thing. And I was like freaking out and crying. Um, you know, you think my dad would have learned his lesson when he tried to show me Star Trek II: the wrath of Khan to Ooh. a child who had suffered from the chronic ear infections. And we got to the scene where they were putting the bugs in Chekhov's ear. And I was freaking the fuck out. You think that would have helped him learn to, you know, don't show your kids scary films. That, but- that, that part of that movie freaked me out as a kid same. too. Yeah. <laughs> I, w- I was spared that for a few more years. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's funny how far this movie goes back. And then, you know, it just kind of keeps coming back up. Like a- Yeah, I mean, I saw this film ages ago and I had a vague memory of some hokey 50s science fiction nonsense in the back of my mind. And when it came up, we'd be watching this. I thought, oh, no, 
not this piece of trash. I was expecting raw hokum from beginning to end, but it held up a lot better than I thought it would. I was going to um, say, like, the, the well, the sets and the oh, backgrounds, yeah. they all hold up. Like, the acting is like the shaky bits, like a bad like backdrop at like a high school musical is like, you know, just wobbling around in the front and it's dressed like Leslie Nielsen, but like behind <laughs> it, the spaceship and all the sets look great. Yeah. I had a yeah. surprisingly good time watching the film, notwithstanding all the problematic bits that don't age well. I also learned about deceleration. <laughs> That's something they don't talk about in sci-fi anymore. That's, That's also true. true. Oh, yeah. they're not going to tell you about deceleration in film school. that's something that that i think is a reasonable a a reasonable point though like you know they were thinking about the science as they were doing it you know the idea that no you have to slow people down from these incredible speeds that the ship is having to move at you know in hyperspace or what have you as we're reverting from uh hyperspace they they actually kind of touched on this a little bit in um the expanse you know when they they had Mm -hmm. somebody travel through the ring and then suddenly he just turned into red gelatin (laughs) i am the shadow of the waxwing slain (laughs) 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 no i thought that it was also very interesting and this was made you know well before uh the general use of computers and their use of naval technology you know and just kind of reimagining it for how you develop uh spaceships i thought was quite interesting there was an attempt to actually use some hard science in this movie it's like when you watch the uh old flight to the moon or something where oh the, the lumiere Black brothers Mike's, yeah it's oh, yeah. it's sort of like watching that in an extent that you know you're just seeing how people from another time pictured space flight and it's interesting yeah, and they they were making the effort they were yeah. really well, trying to imagine what the future might be at the same time, I feel like they may have made a little too much of an effort. I mean, the script kind of read like it was written by the Imagineers from Disney who designed the set and props. <laughs> like every like every time they see a new thing, it's like, oh, and now this is Robbie the Robot. And let me tell you all about his wonderful features for five to ten minutes. That's and then it's true. like, oh, and this is a Beamer. This is what it does. And oh, this wonderful material that the aliens left behind. Let me tell you all about it. Now shoot it with your ray gun to prove that it is solid. Now do this. Now do that. Like available yeah, now from your Avon representative. Like <laughs> it did feel like a low key ad for Tomorrowland. He does. Yeah, he like, does they do yeah. like have like what a, a five minute sequence where he's just showing the trash disintegrator. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. So it takes you like literally fifty minutes to get to yeah. Real home like, of exciting. tomorrow exhibit. <laughs> it's like two-thirds of the movie is that so i i I think we can agree it's it's an artifact from another time and as i always say past is prologue (laughs) (laughs) it's like a little time wow that was as original as hollywood way to go you might even say what's it's prologue. All right. Uh, maybe, maybe we should start walking through the movie a bit. Yeah. So what? What? What is this movie? Who is Robbie? Why is he so important? Let's find out. <clears throat> Andy, you're up. I'm, I'm back. I've, I've got the screwdriver. Not and you, cops. brother Methuselah. Oh, Get out of the space. No. All right then. I'll just wait over here. I swear I locked that door. Get rid of that guy and don't let him back in. Yeah. 
put him back in his like glowing green like holding chamber. You need to I'm do a chat about keeping the door. I I'm going to stand by the door this time. To be to be fair, I did send him for a screwdriver. All right, people collected in this conclave, it's time to begin. Now let's find out about Forbidden Planet. We open on a literal flying saucer approaching Altair. This is the 1950s US Navy in space. The spacemen are looking for a previous exploration party, and as they approach the planet, they're warned to go away by an irritable person we will later learn is Dr. Morbius. Because if you're going to be a super scientist in space in the 50s, you need to have a sinister name. The ship lands, and the planet seems to be entirely deserted. However, a dust cloud in the distance turns out to be Robbie the Robot. And here he is, everybody. Um, The real star of the show turns up early on. It's Robbie. And it's a pretty remarkable opening. He just appears out of the desert like something from Lawrence of Arabia. (laughs) <laughs> like, the, like the bastard child of an ENIAC in the Michelin Man. Well, the yeah. whole du- the whole dust cloud is resulting uh, Ariel from the Tempest, who is an air spirit. So this is another you know analogy to the Tempest. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure but, you realize that though. But Robbie's not as nimble as Ariel is usually portrayed <laughs> on stage. I feel really badly for the actor who had to be in that gonk suit. Like, yeah, just gonk. Oh, Robbie oh, no, here's, here's a funny bit about Robbie, though. Okay, almost immediately. So, this is still one of the most expensive props ever built, like single props for as a percentage of the budget ever built. And it was almost destroyed in this first take because the dude they cast a really short person to be inside the suit and operate Robbie. And through his little voice box grill that's like with lit up with blue neon tubing, Looks that's great. where the operator would look out. Right. Right before the scene, everybody went to lunch and he had the classic 50s, like three to five martini lunch and came back completely (laughs) shithoused and was like stumbling around and almost tripped and destroyed Robbie until they pulled him out and fucking fired him on the spot. Oh, God. They replaced him with another Robbie? Oh, that's wild. Yeah, it could have been someone. I was the original Robbie. Now, wait, now, did they do the thing like Lucas did where there was it was one person in the suit moving around, but it was somebody entirely different doing the voice? Yes, that's exactly what they did. Yeah, no, they had a That's not R2-D2's real voice? I now want to see the drunken Robbie cut of Forbidden (laughs) Planet where he's just waddling left and right, hurling extras across the way. Well, no, but his security (laughs) protocols fail and he just like shoots Leslie Nielsen in the face and that's the end of the movie 20 minutes in. The drunken operator charges Leslie Nielsen. What'd you say, you fuck? Then he high fives Alec Baldwin and moves on. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Too soon. Yes. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay, we can cut that. (laughs) that, That's all staying in. That's all staying in. Yeah, no. uh, Don't worry. We have have plenty more to go because, as I always say, past is prologue. Anyway, what's what's past his prologue? <laughs> the robot drives Leslie Nielsen and a couple of his chums to the House of Morbius, which is a cubist nightmare of horrible angles, terrible furniture, and nightmare-inducing sculptures of fish for some reason. So IKEA. <laughs> Yes, complete with the meatballs. I thought this might have been a ripoff of uh, the French film Mon Oncle, which came out the same year. 
turns out. I thought, you know, but it just turns out it was just the same terrible sense and decor. Yeah, the the fish sculptures. I couldn't take my eyes off them once I saw them. These weird bronze fish that just appear everywhere and look half exploded. There's no reason for them. They just stuck them in the background because that's what we'll do in the future. And just one 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 moment. One, one moment. I thought I heard something. Daniel, is that insect mutant typewriter you brought back from Interzone acting up? Uh, uh... Sorry about this. It, it won't stop producing opinion pieces and explanatory pamphlets until it gets the powder again. No, no, don't give it the powder. Uh, I already gave it the powder. It just wants you to think that it hasn't gotten any powder yet. It's, that's why it's rubbing up against your leg. It only Ew. loves you because it wants the powder. I'm going to stare by the door. I. It, well, it, let's, looks, uh, it seems like it's trying to kiss my leg, and that doesn't... Get it just that's not it a kiss. That's uh, kisses come from the mouth, brother Ethan. Uh, can you please get a control of your creature? Let's get rid of this thing. What, what's this? It's, got, it's been typing something out. Um, one moment. Ah, a log. Better flush it then. <laughs> Not a log joke. That's low-hanging fruit. You're a low-hanging fruit, you ancient testicles-dragging bastard. All right, all right, get all right. back Let's... in here. Get out. He's slippery. locking the door again. Covered in oil. All right, let's see what we have here. <clears throat> All right, here we go. Uh, clinical notes on subject Morbius, comma M, May eighth, twenty one eighty five. That's weird. It's not twenty one eighty five yet. <clears throat> Says uh, subject shows highly evident narcissistic traits ranging from grandiosity of thought, extreme arrogance, and lack of empathy. Subject demonstrates an extreme sense of superiority and seems to feel he is entitled to deference. Subject claims to hold a PhD in philology and linguistics, but speaks at length about subjects ranging from particle physics to engineering without possessing any expertise in those fields whatsoever. Some antisocial elements have been observed as well, particularly the subject's interpretations of Rorschach inkblots, which demonstrate a subconscious fixation with sadistic violence. High Command has instructed that Morbius be cleared for auxiliary service aboard the Bellerophon, citing his credentials in linguistics. This physician grants clearance under extreme protest with the additional caveats that this individual should be closely supervised at all times and should under no circumstances ever be allowed to act in a position of leadership. Signed, S. Lipschitz, MD, Chief Psychiatrist, Earth Space Academy. That sounds problematic. Yeah, no, uh, he, he's a sketchy mofo is what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's there's one more. Morbius's personal log, September 23rd, 2205. Krell technology has expanded my brain. This makes me the smartest man who ever lived. I will have to mention it to my aggressively horny daughter when she's finished playing with hungry predators and the atomic super robot I tinkered together. Also, a flying saucer filled with identically brill-creamed men in jumpsuits arrived today. Naturally, I sent my atomic super robot over to greet them. Huh. Oh, fascinating stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you suppose this might be a glimpse into uh, what's occurring in this film? Uh, a window into what's happening? It's almost as if the Clark Nova can see into these characters' minds. I, is... I would assume nothing. It's high on roach powder. <laughs> Like all the time, I, it's like nonstop, you know, it's like I try to go to bed at night, you know, it's just crying like I need more roach powder. Why the hell did you even bring that thing in here? You could have just brought a novelty stuffed donkey home from Interzone or something. 
That or thing doesn't Taxidermy well, that's that's how I write my diaries. I'm... But the thing looks like a roach, but it takes roach poison. Is it suicidal? Oh, don't ask about. Uh, it is a writer, Clark Nova. It's not <laughs> worth it. Strange. If it gets too close to me, I'm going to squash it. Perhaps since it's a writer, maybe we should provide it with a Hemingway solution. Yes. Listen, Nova. Don't take it. Don't take it personally. That's they don't a mean little it, drastic. Right? They're just a little. They're just a little close-minded. Is all. All right, Nova. It's okay. Now he's talking to the typewriter. Uh-huh. Well, anyway. Think this thing can even speak. Daniel, that, ha- uh... Daniel, have you been taking the roach powder? No. Okay. Why would you ask me a silly question like that? Well, you know what? Security is my job. God's sake, somebody look at his... And you're doing a great job at it. Where I don't know. How... After all? Probably right behind me. I think I hear him scratching at the door. No! You stay out there. Keep him away. Anyway, everybody, moving on from that unwanted digression, Dr. Morbius claims that the rest of his crew died because some kind of alien force that only he and his wife were immune to did something terrible to them. The men seem more surprised that there was a woman in space for him to marry than anything else. We are introduced to the Doctor's weirdly horny daughter, Altera, who really doesn't try to hide how interested she is in brill-creamed, uptight 50s guys. Altera demonstrates that the wild animals, which apparently are also present on the planet, all do as she says, and is introduced by a ship officer to something the Earthmen call a kiss. She gets the idea that Leslie Nielsen doesn't like her, because he wants her to stop tempting his testosterone-fueled band of space wolves with her unspeakable feminine wiles. This is not played for comedy. He has genuine concerns that the men will be helpless not to devolve into eye-bulging troglodytes, turgid from impacted testosterone. And, hang on, wait a minute, I can hear it again. Where is it? Is it under the table? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. The Clark Nova says it is something else, actually. Uh, uh, this one looks like an entry from Altera's diary. Let me see that. <clears throat> it's a typewriter. How, how did it manage to dot all the eyes with cartoon hearts? No idea. No idea. You just read it. I thought Lieutenant Farman seemed dreamy at first, but this kissing thing sure didn't live up to all the hype. He clearly enjoyed it, but I found his lips puny and flaccid. You're really unsatisfying. Maybe I should try it with some other members of the crew. Oh. Uh, Captain Adams showed up to grump at me about the kissing. I don't know why. Maybe he wanted to kiss Lieutenant Farman. Now, I, he also doesn't like how I dress and wants me to keep away from the crew. Maybe if I dress and act like a crewman, he'd be nicer to me. Who doesn't like miniskirts? Honestly, I was so confused by all this that I immediately went to discuss it with my father. I showed him the miniskirt and told him in graphic detail about all this kissing stuff. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but father seemed disturbed. I wonder why. No doubt. There's another. Looks like a log entry again. This one, oh, from Leslie Nielsen. Here we go. Uh, Captain's log supplemental. I ordered the ship's medical officer to up Lieutenant Farman's saltpeter ration after I caught him fraternizing with one of the locals. Farman still hasn't fully recovered from his case of Capellan Comidia, and it would be unfortunate if our ship was to be the cause of yet another outbreak. The last colony we infected had to be sterilized from orbit. 
Uh, the, the only, only way, way to be sure. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, imagine just a ship full of Captain Kirks. That's that's what we're dealing with here. Yeah. Well, it is the Navy, after all. Well, I mean, you can see it in the very first scene. Like, Leslie Nielsen effectively invents the Riker pose. Oh, yeah, they, really they don't does, even question he? it. It's, it's just assumed that all these men trapped in a flying saucer are naturally going to just devolve into horn dogs. There's no sense of, uh, of proprietary in these people at all. No, Once again, and of course, it's Altera's fault. Once mm-hmm. again, Space Wolf, not to be associated with the band Guitar Wolf. All right. Oh, one yeah, day yeah. you're going to have Duly to let them go. Oh, I'm listening to them on my headset right now. I thought oh. perhaps you were making a Warhammer 40,000 reference. Oh, oh. Okay, I don't know if this thing is humping or sucking my leg, but uh, either way, let's step to ads real quick, shall we? Uh, here, I'm going to get it with my book. Thank you. Do you want them? I'm good. Have you have you wiped the oil off yourself? Are you you dressed? He is wearing his robe and his fez, but does appear that he cannot come in until you are dressed and clean like a normal person. My clothes have rotted away over the decades. Uh, All right. Well, disgusting. uh, You think you can uh, pick up the next part of the plot, Zach? All right, here. I'm going to lean against the door. I'll do my, I'll read. Despite the warnings Warnings of Morbius, Morbius. the crew intend to stay on the planet until they can work out what is happening. They then have to put up with the complaints Complaints of Morbius, Morbius. followed by the vague Vague threats threats of Morbius. The men leave. They intend to signal Earth for orders as soon as they can get their equipment set up. That night, the soda jerk they have aboard the ship for some reason decides to go on a walkabout and encounters Robbie and introduces him to the concept of hard booze. Later that night, some one, some thing approaches the ship. It is invisible and manages to slip around the ship and sabotage some equipment. Leslie Nielsen decides that there is not exactly a long list of suspects and goes to hear the excuses of Morbius. Altura is surprised to see him. She has taken his stiff back, ramrod straight, and fully erect attitude of rigid refusal to be interested in her as him finding her repellent. It's either one thing or the other with this girl. While Leslie Nielsen flirts with Altera, a wild tiger appears. It leaps out at Altera, no longer calm in her presence. She is shocked by this, and Leslie Nielsen vaporizes the tiger with his ray gun. She's shocked by that, too. Leslie Nielsen calms her down with more weird open-mouth 1950s kissing. Turns out, he does like her. Surprise, surprise. Wait, I can hear it moving around again. It's scuttling around underneath the table. Turns out that she must have been marked by all those men kissing her. So now her animals are like, you belong to someone else and you're no longer our master. Sorry. 
is that how it works? <laughs> I, uh, you know, that sounds reasonable. I didn't see Leslie Nielsen hike up a leg and just spray, but you know, it could have <laughs> happened. There is something to be said about the 1950s moralism, you know, here where they're saying that, you know, only she, this was a, perhaps I think a, a Hayes Code reference to uh, virginity because, you know, the animals will only be kind to a female virgin. Then they no longer recognize That's this. the this forbidden is- kissing. Well, I mean, in point of fact, uh, when they say the forbidden planet, they don't just mean the planet. She is the forbidden planet. She Does she do the forbidden fr- planet, does she do I, I even had a dance. film professor tell me about this. It's a long story. The Forbidden Dance. Isn't that... Uh, Just for reference, the Lombata is the, the Forbidden Lomb- Dance. That's what it was, the Lombata. <laughs> 90s style twerking, right? Right. But <laughs> Professor Andreas is right on with this one. Mm-hmm. It is an analogy that uh, virginity is lost even through just the act of kissing. I mean, the moment that she looked at them funny, it probably was just out the window. Well, it's yeah. it's not just kissing. It's open mouth with 1950s kissing, which is more or less just s- smashing your maws together aggressively. Yeah. I mean, it really just looks like a headbutt, but they missed. Yeah. Or well, maybe, maybe, and bear with me for a moment here. Maybe it's a fucking tiger. That's a wild <laughs> animal. And this was inevitable. She was going to get Siegfried and Royd sooner or later. Well, maybe she was just irritated by the sound of their teeth clacking together Ah. when they kiss. Such an awkward kiss. It's so awkward. Daniel, can you please get your your beast under control? This thing is, it it, it won't leave my leg alone. But it's it's another diary. We need a better working relationship. Fuck, that thing's just jonesing for another fix. Why can't you see it? Well, I, I see it just fine. I mean, who isn't jonesing for another fix? Oh. No, no, I mean, seriously, anybody else wants them? No, thank you. Man, you've got to stay off the bug powder. I'm telling you, as your general well-wisher, if not colleague. All right, all right. To, all right. Uh, hit me up after the show. I'd like to discuss this with you in a little more detail. <clears throat> so okay. what's this about a diary entry? Yeah, yeah, so this entry's from Altera. Uh, the captain killed my cat today, which that sounds totally like a country song lyric. <laughs> I'm so attracted to him for telling me to cover myself up and for killing my pets. It's what every girl wants. The captain unsheathed his blaster. It was the first time I had ever seen a naked gun. It made me immediately want to try this kissing thing with him. I think he likes my kissing better than Lieutenant Farman's. His other blaster kept poking me in the thigh though, which is funny because I thought he only had the one pistol. Can you just sedate that thing so we can get on with the show, please? It's really... <laughs> it's creepy as fuck. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Roll up Thank an ancient you. parchment and give it a bop on the space bar. A certain dominance. I'm gonna throw my book at it again. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Where was I? The spacemen decide they are tired of politely waiting in the sitting room of Morbius and bust into his study. It seems he has been working on some strange, some might say alien writing. Morbius arrives through a strange triangular door and agrees to tell them what's been really going on. In a visually striking set of scenes, Morbius shows Leslie Nielsen and his chum the gigantic network of nuclear-powered machinery under the planet. And this really holds up, too. Like, I mean, graphics-wise, these things actually really hold up. It's, it's It's beautiful examples of what they could do with the special effects of the time. Yeah, no, way better than the acting. 
<laughs> way better. They, you definitely see where they uh, put their money there. This used to be the home of a super advanced alien race that went extinct centuries ago for unknown reasons. And he has been studying their super advanced science. That's how he could build Robbie. And they are the ones who thought it would be totally chill to visit Earth and borrow a bunch of tigers and whatnot in the distant past. Oh, also, he has been gifted with super intelligence by an alien machine. No big deal. Leslie Nielsen is shocked and decides that they need to signal home for orders. Morbius has little choice in the matter, but makes it clear that he plans on only releasing snippets of alien super science because man is not yet ready. Leslie Nielsen is expecting more trouble, and so he has an electric fence and defenses placed around the ship. But the invisible something returns, and this time there's a ferocious battle. Men barely manage to get through it, and they realize that they are dealing with something that could kick their ass six ways to Sunday. While this is going on, the 1950 chef has snuck off again and is getting completely wasted with Robbie, who has now produced vast quantities of booze. What a helpful robot that Robbie. We love Robbie the booze bot. Can we yes, can we, we talk about this? cook for a second like <laughs> why did they bring this cook along and he's dressed in like the old white hat and the apron and like there's yeah, no walking around on an alien yeah. landscape and he keeps <laughs> the apron <laughs> right he goes everywhere with them wherever he wants he just wanders around he's not just staying on the ship which by the way we can see the interior of it is too small to have a kitchen <laughs> That is true. Well, I, galleys, we're, uh, we're often sort of uh, knock together affairs in the middle of everything else. But I believe, you know, you make a good point about the sartorial choices for this chef. I mean, he's the only one of them who has a piss cutter hat, you know, and those flat sort of chef hats. <laughs> and the rest of them are all wearing what we call space ball hats. They're all like, they look like they're about to go have an intergalactic game of, of baseball. Um, definitely <laughs> not cricket. No, but yes, you make a good point. He wanders drunkenly around the planet looking like uh, uh, looking like an extra from Happy Days. And the yes, booze, uh, I mean, and the it, booze it, it, that it, he it, has it. him make too is Kentucky bourbon. I mean, damn, that's stuff that will like strip the paint off their insides. That's just what they were doing in the 1950s. You just you had your consciousness stripped from you by this alcohol. <laughs> yeah. The 1950s yeah. were a time of heavy drinking, but I mean, even for the 1950s, sailors are known for drinking. We were Maybe on. that's how it <laughs> used to be, but do remember, past is prologue. What's past is prologue? What's past is prologue? <sighs> ah, God damn it! that thing just licked my ankle. It's stumbling around down there. What the hell is it doing? Well... That looks like another entry. Oh, uh, it's from Adams this time, or Leslie Nielsen. Oh. Captain's log, I bravely ordered crewman Jones and Smith to attack the invisible monster point blank with their long range blaster rifles, exactly according to Academy teachings. Checks Neither out. survived. Space tactics for dummies might be obsolete at this point. In any event, the odds of victory were improved when the ship's cook returned with 60 gallons of whiskey that he found somewhere i am ordering a half gallon per man to fortify them for the next totally pointless fight oh, see right. now think... now he's starting to sound like kirk yeah, yeah. yeah took him the whole movie office look down on this kind it's time of a damn typewriter got the shoe treatment come here you little bastard come here ah. 
guess that should do it. Yep. Oh, Nova. Would you look at that mess? There's, there's I-Corps sprayed across half the restricted room. Brother Methuselah! Brother Methuselah! Get your ancient carcass in here! Okay. I'm, I'm here! I'm here! Get, What's the matter? Get the mop! Oh, the mop! I don't have to mop up the slime, do I? Yeah, but if you could gather the pieces of my heart, that would be great. Pieces of heart, get the mop, get the screwdriver. Oh, Feel like a bloody bartender. Move! Move yourself. Oh, actually, a gin and tonic, too? That would be great. I'll take a rum and coke. I like that idea. Yeah. This off. You know, while Brother Methuselah it. cleans oh, mutant bug guts off the projector and mixes us some really nice drinks, we should just... Yeah. Uh, fuck it! We're going to commercial, everyone! God, that's over with. Okay. Who's doing the next part of the summary? Uh, Professor Andrea. Cool. Let's hear it. Professor. Leslie Nielsen has had enough of this nonsense by now. Him and the ship's doctor returned for the blazing argument of Morbius. They reckon that the only way to figure out what's going on is to use that alien superintelligence machine themselves. Robbie tries to stop them coming into the house but it's about as effective a door guard as the man in a bulky, heavy robot outfit would have been. While Leslie Nielsen tries to convince a girl he started dating yesterday that she should come away with him to a second location with a super cool spaceman gang and cut all ties to family, the doctor manages to sneak into the lair of Morbius and tries to use the brain machine. Unfortunately, it blew his mind. And as he lies dying on the couch, couch of, of Morbius, Morbius, he explains that the Invisibeast is in fact a monster from the <laughs> The aliens were destroyed by their own base subconscious fears and emotions. Cosmic. You might perhaps find it interesting to note that this film came out two full years after the CIA had kicked off Operation Midnight Climax. Um, which, you know, given that it's the CIA, it could not possibly have been content with the half decade they'd spent fucking around dumping mega doses of LSD into the martinis of random people. No, they actually had set up a secret brothel in San Francisco, kidnapped strangers off the street, filled their heads with acid, and then would film them having sex with prostitutes who were also dosed with LSD. Because fuck you, they're the CIA, stop asking questions, curiosity kills the cat. Dibs on Operation Midnight Climax as a band name. Oh. it beat me to it. <laughs> Morbius arrives and refuses to believe all this talk of invisible id monsters, which on the face of it is quite a reasonable attitude and is definitely not a textbook example of psychological denial. However, now the beast comes to attack the house. Nothing can stop it, not even Robbie, who decides now is the time to have a divide by zero error over the whole affair. Realizing that the end is coming and it's all his own dumb fault, Morbius concludes that the alien machines have to be destroyed. Accepting the apologies of Morbius. Leslie Nielsen pulls the lever and sets the whole shebang to self-destruct. Getting away just in time, the crew are able to witness the destruction of the planet firsthand. If it wasn't forbidden before, it bloody well is now. Yeah, but I don't get it. 
Look, it's a simple story. Bunch of boys meet girl. Girl likes boys. Boys start kissing girl, which annoys girl's father who deploys atomic super robot to defuse a situation. Boys insist on penetrating the forbidden lair. Invisible id beast remonstrates on the matter. Boy vaporizes tiger. Girl kisses boy. Doctor admonishes girl. Beast attacks everyone. Planet explodes. Simple. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a tale as old as time, just as the bard intended. Judgment. Let's let us move to judgment. Yeah, it's about time for some judgments around here. I haven't been exercising very good judgment lately. (laughs) Yeah, whoever picked this uh, film was not exercising good judgment, I think. Well, I don't know. I mean, there's there's a lot to be said for this film. As we've said before, the special effects, the visual style. It's worth watching for that. Let's mention that visual style. Did anyone else notice that the insignia on all of the spaceman hats kind of looked like a sperm i didn't need to notice that because i just knew you would and did anyone else notice that all of their uh neutron beam guns looked like marital aids of some variety oh come again their guns look like vibrators okay you know i thought they looked more like coke bottles both. You know, I, I thought as far as like phallic symbols in the movie goes, like the when they were setting up the radio and they had that giant like that that giant glass phallic thing with the big copper tubing inside of it. And they like I was setting it up right at groin level, you know, and so it's taking up <laughs> half the screen. And this is film supposed to be built on Freudian psychology. And that was real obvious that they're like, hey, no, no, look that at was my giant definitely, space dong. That was definitely a cigar right there. Yeah. I mean, that was a Klystron. That's an actual real piece of equipment, I believe. They might have Yeah, but is it usually held it. that way? <laughs> no, I mean, you don't normally wave it at Leslie Nielsen while pontificating wildly, no. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> also talking about uh, special effects, this, this movie truly is a masterclass on uh, forced perspective, especially with like, some of when they're walking through uh, the scene with the nuclear uh, reactors. And uh, that's really actually a forced perspective of a glass painting, I think was what they did. They'd put it on the camera and then they would- Great map paintings. Yeah, and then they would, and then they would track. So it looks like the individuals are walking right next to the reactors, but really, they're just walking in, I don't know, some sort of industrial complex. So you get the concrete and the railings, but all of that, uh, all of the nuclear reactors and stuff is drawn in. So, exact yeah, same I mean, technique so, that so, they used in Return of the Jedi. I mean, the, those mm-hmm. uh, matte paintings are always done mm-hmm. on glass, but that's the, the same force perspective techniques and stuff are all used in Return of the Jedi. Uh, yeah. It's, it, yeah. And like I said, it was masterclass on it. It's just beautiful. Yeah, and a I mean, lot of later films would definitely take visual cues from this. I mean, not only television, obviously with Star Trek, but the whole idea of uh, you know nuclear bunker filled with blinking lights and stuff. This basically invented a whole visual language for crazy science fiction for decades to come. True. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the aesthetic is dated by our standards, but um, I mean, taking that into account, it holds up. It yes. still looks incredible. Like I, my jaw was on the floor when I was rewatching this with y'all. Like I was just, wow. This this is why I always say that I love and can rewatch anything that has practical camera effects. You know, again and again, other than like you know something from the 1990s with CGI from the time, which just is so corny and cartoony looking. Yeah. You don't like a Misa face. 
<laughs> I oh, never yeah. liked the Yara face. <laughs> Be a punch of Yara face. I was curious <laughs> okay, why all of the underground stuff looked amazing, but there was nothing on the surface. Like the half of the built above ground, gone completely. The park below ground, perfect. How? <laughs> Science. I mean, uh, obviously, the Tempest, you've got a desert island. They obviously thought, hmm, desert island, desert planet, True. desert. Let's just make the whole thing a great big desert. We're so clever. And I mean, George Lucas goes, hmm, deserts, huh? Oh, my God. I mean, true. Yeah. Uh, but also, when it comes to the, the science of the actual altar, the star, or rather the seven star system, um, the, the white dwarf. So I have a subscription to white dwarf. Oh, God. Uh -huh. Are we talking about the original actor inside Robbie again? <laughs> mm -mm. Mm -mm. Wow. Mm -mm. Sorry, you were, you were trying to school us on the actual astronomy. Uh, uh, <laughs> Let the science man please. speak. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, no, this is, it's it's a really, it's it's interesting because also it's, it's very close to us, but the way that it's set up, it would burn away any sort of ozone layer. It's it's just, it's it's just funny because that's, that's what would give us a desert effect that would really kind of scorch the surface. But, but at about three times the distance, that uh, the Earth is to our sun, uh, you could form liquid water, but would you have an atmosphere? Eh, we'll see. I mean, if you really like ultraviolet rays, uh, incredibly uh, more powerful than our sun emits, then, I mean, be my guest, but uh, be sure to pack a lot of sunblock. <laughs> you don't think the Krails technology somehow made an atmosphere that Morbius and his daughter then later took advantage of? That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, for all that we see, the, the cool underground stuff, he talks about how they had mile-high towers of porcelain and steel. That would have been really nice to see. Absolutely. A porcelain tower. That's, uh, that's an interesting image. And they also would have, uh, they probably would have evolved underground. Um, sorry, when I say white dwarf, I mean white main sequence dwarf star, just to kind of put that in there. So it's not like super tiny. Uh, uh, I was I was going to correct you on that, but you correct. Yeah, me. I knew so, that. So yeah, <laughs> just so, so, just so. I was going to suggest that that this is uh, this is maybe a little suggestion that if you if you are privy to the sciences, these people clearly were in designing the film, and they you you could extrapolate that the Krell might actually have been highly melanistic, so in a highly mm. advanced society of dark skinned aliens. Mm -hmm. if they were living on the surface so that that's uh i don't know i feel like that that may be an oblique way uh that the folks were making sure that the science fiction was uh that it isn't always some lost white race that these folks yeah that's also a very good point too but maybe it's, um, a, it's a reach but it seems to me that may be a consideration i think you might be giving them a little credit there because yeah. let's talk about the script um, oh let's boy. talk about the attitudes <laughs> that these guys have. The, the science is great. The visuals are great. Lots of effort made there. But when they open their mouths, the kind of stuff that comes out is not great. The attitudes, the, the assumption that just a woman being in space at all is bizarre. They are genuinely surprised when Morbius says, I, oh, I had a wife. They're like, why would you have a wife? Why would there be women around here anywhere? 
and the the assumption that uh, if you have a, a young girl in the presence of these salty sea dogs of the stars that they're just going to go wild so she has to be pretty responsible and she has to watch out what she does and how she dresses in case she drives into paroxysms of manly fury that stuff didn't hold up so well so we're not no. going to be completely fondling the balls and slurping the rod on this film but also Jesus. like it's like you you have only men around and back in the day is like oh but gay bad like come on Jesus well fuck. yes <laughs> there there's no there's no discernible evidence at all of any kind of homosexuality taking place in any navy vessel ever never never what do you mean? no no it's statistically likely you got a crew of, I don't know, 30 guys in space for years. There's not one homosexual guy there. Yeah. Well, you know, this the, reminds me of when I was aboard the USS Midway. This is a ship that was um, being built during World War II. It was a, a Roosevelt-class aircraft carrier and served until the early 90s when it was decommissioned and became a museum ship in San Diego. Now, if you want to talk about, like, one of the most homoerotic paintings I have ever seen, period. You go into the engine room of the Midway and there is, uh, they have this great big wall of, of copper valves because the way the ship ran was on steam. And they had these, these great diesel turbines that would generate steam that would then be rerouted using this system of crank valves. And on the wall is a picture of, of a sailor standing but like his backside right little tight apple ass sailor in his cute little bell-bottom jeans tight nice. up you know like looks very tom of finland you know with his <laughs> hands up on the valves looking like it's very you know very much like he's almost on a rack you know it's it is <laughs> like i said it's very tom of finland and i was like well, yeah yeah there you go this you know is what the they navy always, guys you know what they always said about the submarine service is like 100 men go down in the sea, 50 couples come back up. Nice. There you go. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a film that really um, wears its heart on its sleeve in a weird way. I mean, yeah. oddly, the things that they thought would be bizarre, robots and crazy special effects and animated monsters, we kind of take that in our stride now. We've seen all that before. We're, we're fine with it. But the stuff that makes us pause and go, whoa, did they just do that? is the, the bits like with Leslie Nielsen saying, why you young lady, I order. And yes. the, whole, the whole idea of, um, of the bizarre sexual morals of these people. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting too, taking this back to the Shakespearean roots of uh, Caliban uh, being played as the id monster in this Caliban in a lot of productions of The Tempest, especially around that time. He was usually cast as a native or, or somebody who was of a non-white persuasion, mm. you know, and all it really says in The Tempest is that he is monstrous in some way. So these are the societal takes on this character mm -hmm. and of indigenous people of the time. All right, guys, chill out, please. I guess we're going to, uh, I guess we're going to break. All right. feeling okay everyone's good all good cool um let's get back into this 1956 science fiction movie forbidden planet 
Well, we've had uh, a lot of fun riffing on this film, but like I do always say, past is prologue, and we're going to have to render judgment. But speaking of past, though, like I did, I did a bunch of reading up on this, and like we can't, we can't look at this film without acknowledging how much modern science fiction owes a debt to it. So, you know, uh, when when we were first talking about this before we rolled, and I pointed it out to to Brother Andre about how this film is the inspiration for Star Trek. Like Star Trek would not exist for it, you know, and it is. Uh, the visual language it establishes really um, goes forward and you can still see elements of it almost vestigially in modern science fiction. Um, but what this was, was like sort of the culmination of a whole bunch of other science fiction that had begun to rise after World War II up to this point. You had this whole 10 year period where people were like thinking about like, okay, we just fought this major technological war. We had people who were doing stuff in submarines underwater and we had these great big planes. And so like the visual language of the, of the 1950s was just sort of an extrapolation of the looks of war machines from World War II. It kind of makes sense for these folks to, to look like they were from um, you know, the 1950s Navy, because that's what they had the idea of. And that's what was being depicted in the comics of the era. So like when this movie came out, EC Comics had just been canceled. So as much as the right wing likes to scream about cancel culture, all, all of the ideas of science fiction that, that, that were trying to be brought up and discussed when people are saying like, oh, you know, like modern sci-fi is woke and, and this is all like, this is all a bunch of, you know, modern liberals trying to force their modern values on people. No, bullshit. This has been the heart of science fiction since Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein in 18, what, 1819? Like she, she pioneered science fiction. And you can find this as like these, these challenging subjects that get brought up and discussed from the very fucking beginning. And a lot of this stuff was being talked about in the 50s in EC comics, weird science, weird fantasy. You know, they had similar stories that came up in the horror trilogy of, of Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, and Haunt of Fear. But all these comic books were, were targeted by moralists and people who were talking about that this was subversive and would cause the youth to question this, you know, the values of America and that this stuff needed to be taken away off the shelves. You know, and so we're seeing a lot of the same, you know, a very similar kind of push that we saw um, in the Reagan era against music. They hauled Frank Zappa and Dee Snyder in front of uh, the Senate and shook their fingers at them. You know, like we, we saw this, these same movements. We saw the same thing happen. Like you go back and you read um, the very first issue of Weird Science, or actually one of the very first issues of Weird Science. They have an absolutely scathing indictment of bigotry, but set in like the 2200s. You know, you see this like like so, repeatedly setting the stage for stuff like Star Trek. In, or, intellectual thought. So what you're saying is science fiction has always been a woke culture ass wagon. So, you know. Well, I mean, I mean, yes, I think that this movie, you can see it here very clearly um, because of the reaction. I think in mainstream science fiction, it took a big ass step backwards because of the reactionary uh, yeah. folk coming at it. Um, yeah. You know, it, it did. Like, you can see it in a lot of science fiction in the 50s. It feels very unwoke. And, and like, even by the standards of, like, the 80s. It, um, it turned into, well, like, a bunch were... of monsters, like, you know, yeah. taking the woman and... Oh, well, that's, well, that's the thing. They, women, they, they, you know? they sucked a lot of the innovation out of the genre to make it more about, like, like, like you're saying, that it was, like, 
it's just another way of doing monster movies and adventure movies where the action man is the hero and he's going to save the woman from the thing, except they have laser guns, right? Like, but, and they recovered. And I think Star Trek is one of the ways that it really recovered. It did. Absolutely. Yeah, no, you nailed it. And you have to, you know, that's that's one actually one of the other reasons why Star Trek was successful was because you had a woman entrepreneur in the form of Lucille Ball taking a gamble on it and saying, no, fuck you. I'm going to make this show because I think it has meaning. I think it's important because the, and one of the, I think one of the reasons why they were struggling uh, to, to tell these kind of stories, and you can see them coming real close and trying real hard in Forbidden Planet to tell like uh, to, to tell some of these stories that, that they can't because they're fighting against two major things. One, finances, because they can only be as liberal as the conservative financiers of Hollywood. And two, they're fighting against the Hayes Code. There's certain things where they're not allowed to imply that even the implication of equality among the races. Yeah, you know, anything it, licentious, anything that, that mm-hmm. challenges what was called the, the natural law. Yeah, and, and the, part the, of that the, natural law was white supremacy. Uh, yeah. You know, white yeah. male so you, supremacy. There were, there were literal rules in place that this is the society we have. We really like this society and we want all films everywhere to support that society and not do anything to challenge it. And it was, it was written down in a little code that you could pick up and leaf through and all films had to obey the Hayes Code. Yeah. Yeah. And you can really see the shift most, I think, and I'm not the biggest Trekkie, so I'm curious what uh, some of our bigger Trekkies think of this. Is like in the original series, where in the first couple of seasons, Kirk macking on anything that moves is like, ha yeah, boy. And then gradually it actually shifts a little bit to the occasional like, <laughs> look at him, he's a tool. I'll be kind of honest when it comes to the the lore of Star Trek, Kirk he don't get me wrong like he he is 100 uh a ladies man but it's not as pronounced as a lot of people really make it out to be um he's also very much rash decision maker definitely a little bit less of a mm-hmm. i i have a particularly interesting rabbit hole when it comes to uh how fascist picard is and that's why i don't <laughs> particularly like picard do you mean the character or the tv series i think he means oh, the, the, character. the character the character himself yeah. and he, he does get better i just when it comes to federation politics i have a lot to say but that's not the podcast for that well that's uh, why everybody knows that cisco is the best captain it's but. uh it's, it's an <laughs> oh. interesting comparison to make in terms of the two captains there of Kirk and Leslie Nielsen, because Kirk yeah. is officially a diplomat, but is shown to be a bit of a horn dog. Leslie yeah. Nielsen is, uh, is is acting as a diplomat and a scientist, but everyone talks about how much of an incredible horn dog he is. They can't show it, but the way they describe him, all the other crew members say, "Oh yeah, he goes from port to port. He women are not no, safe I, around." I thought no. that was no. I thought that was the lieutenant, like. He's got this woman and he sees that she's interested in the captain. So he's negging like, oh, you don't want to be with this guy. This guy's been with like every woman in the uh, in the yeah. system here. And yeah, they made like, that whole thing about women wouldn't be safe around him. Yeah, yeah right. no, I no, thought no. that was the lieutenant. Psychological just, projection? Yeah, I thought, <laughs> that was, I thought that was the lieutenant like saying, trying to like be like, no, yeah, pay definitely the lieutenant. I'm the safe so, yeah. guy who actually, and he was actually the horn dog that you didn't. 
yeah she wasn't safe around because it, it um, is leslie nielsen who like turns his back when she's coming out of the pool and he's much more like patronizing right he's not yeah. he's he's less about like yeah i want to get with you and more like you got to stop flashing your ankles around my men yeah they're all gonna like bust a nut it goes after her at the end but, yeah, yeah. I mean, they oh, yeah. want to they want to portray him as a womanizing kirk-esque captain but obviously they can't but they they if you read the character as he you know in terms of his actions and in terms of how people address him they all perceive him to be basically captain kirk they just can't show any of that mm-hmm. i don't know about that i think given the, the 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 psychological themes it may be more projection i think andrea has actually uh has, has a uh, some some significant notes on this uh, so i'd like to give her some chance to talk to yeah. on this topic floor is yours professor <laughs> Well, there's a lot of Freudian psychology in this whole film with the id, the unconscious, irrational desire for pleasure or aggression that the doctor, Morbius, is unconsciously unleashing on the crew because they're all kissing his daughter. (laughs) Uh, But then there's also defense mechanisms that you see in Freudian psychology like projection, you might hate someone, but since it's not good to hate people, you think they hate you. So they say that this guy is bad because he's really sex crazy, but actually it's me who's like that. That comes up a lot. And also why is it that Dr. Morbius doesn't realize his id killed all those people when they first landed? Is it denial? a defense mechanism also yeah there's that weird there's that weird scene where mobius says i i'm having this strange intuition that something's going to come for you and and destroy the ship like what he's supposed to be a man of science and he's having weird dreamlike intuition states that he just doesn't question he just says oh i i just have a feeling that something bad is going to happen to you and dreams actually in Freudian psychology are a way the unconscious desires manifest themselves Yep. I uh, Morbius is asleep when the the monster originally attacks as well. I I had assumed that it directly came from his sleeping mind. Did anyone else? I had that feeling too. Yeah. 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 That was a that's a good point. You know, kind of talking like you said, Andrea, about uh, the the manifestation of the desires of the id in dream. You know, mm-hmm. it's that. I mean, they they kind of do it clumsily again because um, there are certain Reasons. topics they can't talk about. You know, the Freudian psychology really deals with a lot of sexual topics, and they weren't really able to discuss that in general in public. You know, but in particular in in cinema at the time. But um, no, I think I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, they're trying to represent stuff in uh, Freudian psychology, both textually and subtextually. Like the textually stuff being talked about the monsters from the id. But like, unless you know what the, the id is, where they, they kind of have to tell the audience, this is what the id is. But th- that's also something that that is a theme that was picked up on by Gene Roddenberry for Star Trek. Like he very explicitly has said in the, you know, in in creating the original series that the 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 holy trinity, so to speak, of, of Kirk, Spock and McCoy were as ego, superego and it, you know, with Kirk as the ego. <laughs> funny because we make like to make cracks about william shatner being an ego test but you Oops. know uh, kirk being the ego spock being the super ego that which is the what everybody aspires to be the perception that one has of oneself 
and then the id being the basis desires, you know, and, and McCoy very much just always just like emotionally expressing himself. Blurts out whatever he feels like. Also, like considering just the politics of the time that Star Trek is set in, Bones is a little bit, uh, a little bit racist. Not yeah, he's a bit dated. He's an old yeah. country doctor. <laughs> you know? he, he makes no he makes no bones about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you could see a lot of the attitudes, maybe of the, the chef. If if the chef was a medic, you could see him being a bones kind of, you know, say it like I see it, rough and tumble kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. Like a young bones. <laughs> is that what the cook is doing throughout all of Forbidden Planet? <laughs> oh, he's booze is for medicinal tumble. purposes. <laughs> oh yeah 100% well you know Star Trek was originally uh, based on westerns and you know his McCoy is supposed to be that old sawbones who's like takes a lug of whiskey before he saws off your leg <laughs> kind I mean, of in doctor. the opener in the opening scene of of the cage like literally the ship's doctor just shows up to the captain's room and pulls out a drink for the both of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly yeah, I'm surprised um, we only saw as much drinking as we did in the film. <laughs> Although drinking and excessive alcohol, that's banned by the code as well. Yep. What? Yep. yep. Did anyone else, just speaking of psychology uh, in the film... Like, like I mentioned earlier, the reason that this doesn't have the happy ending that The Tempest has is because of man's inability to uh, tame its own id and desires to master technology for an enlightened purpose. And I wonder a bit if this decision for this has a bit to do with the atomic age and the use of the nuclear bomb oh, in World War II, because there was still a lot of that like nuclear terror and that whole thought of what have we unleashed upon the world. No, you know, every, everybody, everybody who made this film had seen the atom bomb go off 10 years before. Mm -hmm. So that's got to have been part of their thinking. I mean, the world went from a place where like war was one thing to all of a sudden we can destroy the entire planet. And, you know, even the thought of like, you know, Morbius not wanting to release all the technology that he's finding from the Krell because he's afraid of what he actually does. He's afraid of other people doing the repercussions of giving people this technology. He sees the damage it can do, not realizing that he has not mastered it himself to the point that he thinks and he unconsciously, literally unconsciously, releases a terror on everybody. The bigger question for me is if this brain machine he took made uh. his consciousness, his ego, really big, he's smart and everything, and his id, his monster tendencies, what about the superego? What about the morality of you know civilization? Why wasn't that equally large? Well, we had um, a bit of a discussion about this just before the show, and he talks about the in the enlightened morality of these aliens, the more superior ethics, as if ethical ability is something that's on a scale that can be measured. 
like you have your IQ measure and your ethics measure. And these aliens were so far ahead of us, their ethics were so far advanced. He kind of subscribes to their ethics now, not human ethics. So his superego isn't even thinking in human terms, I would say. He's thinking in these sort of galactic alien terms. Well, coming from a, a structural standpoint, you know, going, and this is kind of also some of the stuff we discussed with Trash Shaman during the episode on the show, is that you've got these three ideas of superego, ego, and id, but you can also look at them structurally in the brain. You know, the, the superego being the manifestation of the prefrontal cortex, which is downstream from the amygdala, but can be hijacked by the amygdala. That's your monster from your id, the, the lizard brain, the thing that's just like immediately go, you know, satisfy these, these base urges that need to be satisfied, hunger, safety, sex. And remember as well, this is the, this is the 50s, uh, massive technological advances had just been seen. Color televisions were appearing everywhere, refrigerators, cars. Every week, it must have seemed like some new technological advancement was just emerging out of nowhere. And there was a very real feeling that's prevalent in a lot of sci-fi at the time of we're letting genies out of bottles, left, right, and center. Mm -hmm. The atomic bomb was one of them. It's, yeah. you know, we're constantly letting out these genies. How long until something happens that we can't undo? And how can we and should we put the genie back in the bottle? That's, I think, what happens later on with technology is the is that, well, you know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. It's there. It's out. Yeah, and that's, the, that's the Star Trek view, that the genie's yep. out, the technology is here, and we're going to use it, and it will be good. Yeah. Right. Well, it's a, this was the era that it, that nuclear war was seen as inevitable. You know, this was the era of duck and cover. They were giving out public safety films on how to protect yourself from uh, fallout and radiation. You know, these these things, they were like, yeah, this we don't see this not happening because there's never been a technology that humans have created that they haven't then also used, which is still something that although this has been an issue at this point for 80, almost 80 years now, this is still a fear that we've at this point, the past 30 years, we've gotten comfortable because supposedly the United States has won the Cold War, but then we got complacent and comfortable with nuclear weapons. And then suddenly... Holy shit! Uh, now we're we're looking at this this potential war with Russia and having invaded the Ukraine. I mean, at this point, who knows when people will listen to this again? Maybe we'll all be listening to this from the bunkers that we've now built in our backyards again. But like the whole point. I hope being, we all have Wi-Fi signals so that you can download our podcast. Yeah, I mean, not to get too fatalist or doomer about it, but it, it you know it gave us all uh, our generation a very rude awakening to like, oh right, yes, this this technology still exists, and this is something that we need to treat with utter caution. Um, well, here's a, here's a question for you. In the 50s, people seeing this film heard Dr. Morbius say, man is not ready for this science. He's not ready, we can't give it to him. Were people looking at that going, yeah, he's right. Morbius is entirely correct in his assessment. Or were they thinking, no, Morbius is being selfish. We should have everything. Making Morbius the smartest person who ever lived. And even he can't handle the technology. I think what they're going for is, Morbius is right about this. And the only way to keep it out of our hands is to destroy it all and let us all come to it in our own terms. But at the same time, Robbie gets off the planet. There's some of the technology right there. And who knows what they're going to do with Robbie's parts. Well, Robbie so, wasn't built by the Krell. He was more of like a Krell human hybrid. It was something that. Yeah, but it still has Krell technological DNA there, you know? You're suggesting a sort of Terminator 2 Skynet situation. Yeah. <laughs>
it all links up, man. Isolation from human society. We know about that from the last two years. Is it possible Dr. Morbius and Altera are slightly crazy from isolation on this planet alone all these years? Don't well, see why not. I mean, definitely they're trying to make the point that Altera, if nothing else, right, she doesn't she doesn't understand quote unquote normal human interactions between men and women. From from our perspective, looking back on it and how dated and sexist it is, it just kind of seems more like a send-up almost of like, yeah, why do we have all these stupid patriarchal like arrangements? But back then, I think it, it was intended straight-faced of like, oh, look at this, look at this girl. She doesn't know that men can be horn dogs and, and stuff like that. Like she totally, yeah, no, she's completely isolated. And also Oh, my just, father calls me ignorant, you know. Yeah. I mean, also just and rigid gender roles as well, because it's just very much confined mm-hmm. within the very 1950s. You don't know what you're thinking, women. Something like that. <laughs> but ironically, her dad doesn't tell her cover up or watch out for these guys he's yep 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 i love your clothes daughter (laughs) he's not the one telling her what to do yeah yeah there's some definite inconsistencies there i'm not sure what to make of that might also be a subtle a subtle nod to to freudian psychology with regard to the oedipal or electra complex oh my miss oh my god always there's definitely some of that going I mean, no, I don't mean to be rude, but I'm just making a point that that was a that was a big chunk of Freudian psychology. And if they're oh, yeah. making both textual and subtextual nods to it, that would be something that they could not avoid. Well, just, yep, that's true. Well, her, I mean, her interactions so, with her father were weird. They just were. Well, I mean, if you go full circle on this, right in the Tempest, Caliban, right before the action even starts, Caliban mm-hmm. has been like chained up and buried in the earth because he attempted to rape Prospero's daughter. Mm-hmm. Now, in True. Forbidden Planet, Caliban is, pro- uh, uh, is Prospero, meaning Morbius's id monster, meaning it's what he really wants to do. Oh, So, yeah, you follow oh, that full circle mad. and you wind up right in your Oedipus. Yep. <laughs> Boom, hits you right in the Oedipus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, so there is that. Um, I don't know if that was intentional or not. That seems like maybe more thought than the script writers did. It's probably a consequence of just the structure being set up that the implications themselves set in. Yeah. Possibly they didn't understand the Shakespeare as well as they thought they did. Oh, dear. As not as well as you do, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow, you know. (laughs) Not everyone's British. I don't think it's... I don't think it's out of re- out of reason to assume that the scriptwriters were doing this subtextually. I mean, they were very well-read people, um, mm-hmm. particularly in this era. There was I'm just making the point about that. Like there, there's stuff they could say, there's stuff they couldn't say, and there's stuff that they probably wouldn't say for for taste reasons, but they would want to hint at. You're going to have multiple layers of audiences. You know, you're going to have the the intellectual crowd who are going to get it. You're going to do what we're doing and analyze the Jesus out of it. And there's other people going to be like, hey, hell, check out that robot and them ray guns. They sure were cool, weren't they? <laughs> I True. honestly yeah. think yeah, right. that this, I honestly think that this is the most and deepest thought ever given to the forbidden oh, you, planet. No, 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 <laughs> no, oh, no, no, no. Many, many of academic paper has been written on this movie. I, really? Yeah. yeah, I actually read through a couple. Nice. <laughs> yeah, no, this was one of the subjects of like my, my one of my film classes. Uh, but uh, anyway, did anyone else notice when Robbie broke the fourth wall? No, when was this? 
uh, I think it was when he was uh, talking to the cook. What was it, Andy? Do you oh, remember the, the, the oil job reference? Oh <laughs> my god! Oh my god! Yeah, right? he, yeah. He like offers to give him an oil job for the whiskey, and Robbie like turns halfway to the screen, like "Hello." Oh yeah, no, that was that was definitely them getting past the haze coat. I'm sorry, madam. I was just giving myself an oil job behind the screen. Like, like, uh, like, whoa now, Robbie. <laughs> Hello, <please>. sailor. <laughs> yeah, but the oil job that you know, everybody looks at one another, uh-huh. Right. An oil okay. job, huh? Right. <laughs> Those rubber mitts of yours. <laughs> Somehow I feel like this violates uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, code of robotics. Uh... <laughs> It's violate is the correct word. I was going to say if it's consensual. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's artificial. Is, is it possible for him to give consent? Or he's not technically alive. Oh, I, do you have to ask consent? Of, time. I was going to say, do you have to ask your toaster if you would for consent to put your bread in If it? your toaster was an <laughs> atomic super robot with death rays, you'd ask. <laughs> 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 I don't know. They say Robbie's just a tool. Oh, oh my god! My father actually has a, uh, a Robbie the robot model, and he did have interchangeable mitts. Like you could change the mitts for a little set of claws, and who knows what other attachments you might have for those. Oh things. boy! Like Data once said, "I am fully functional." Oh. <laughs> but yeah, judgment. I don't know. Andrea, Andre, any other any other thoughts on this before we move to judgment? No. I'm ready. Okay. Let us judge this film. And now it is time for the judgment. Inquisitor Ethan, please present your judgment. I judge this film guilty. Uh, are we I not? judge it guilty. Guilty <laughs> of having called uh, Cinemania and for having birthed the terror that is Star Trek and driven thousands, nay, millions, uh, mad with desire for science fiction and birthed a... Uh, thousands of other episodes of things. We have conventions happening around the planet with people dressing up as these, these fools and as if they're going to visit space. Ridiculous. Uh, don't crimes oh. alone. Scrutinizer Zachariah, what is your judgment? As beautiful as this film is visually, I have to give this movie an entire flying saucer full of problematic grandpas. Guilty. Verifier Andy, what is your judgment? Well, I was going to let this one go. I thought it was just a harmless piece of hokum. But when I watched it again, I realized there's way more to this film than I ever believed. There's a lot of deep themes and deep stuff going on, and we can't be having that. It's definitely guilty. Profligator Daniel, what is your judgment? I got to say, for, for all the things that Brother Ethan said, for the film that birthed a thousand nerds, uh, this <laughs> film is guilty. And Repositor Andre, what is your judgment? For the heinous crime of spawning Star Trek, creating the original series, thus spawning the next generation, thus raising me on the next generation, and thus granting me an unhealthy obsession with Commander Riker, I deem this film guilty. <laughs> and you, Professor Andrea, what is your judgment? For inappropriate use of the Hayes Code to make an extremely creepy and sexual movie that's not supposed to be sexual, I'd make this film guilty. Definitely. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, yeah. I, I concur. Many charges one could bring against this, this, this 
crime of cinema, this filmic felony, if you will. Oh, sorry to surprise you once again, but uh, we, we can't uh, deconvene our conclave because uh, once again, I've invited uh, a special guest. I'll break out the guest fezzes. Ah, special guest special tassels. Has everybody heard of Tim Russ? Oh, I've yes. Yeah, yeah. The yes. Tim Russ. Yeah, the Tim Russ of uh, speaking of Star Trek. The guest, the guest is waiting outside. He keeps telling me to live long and prosper, but in like a sarcastic way. It's such a judgy thing to say. Scrutinizer Zachariah. Let me get the door, that being my title and all. Okay. All right. So I'd like to introduce our special guest, Tim Russ actor, director, writer, producer, cinematographer, astronomy, musician. Uh, damn, Tim, is there anything you can't do? Mr. Russ is best known for his role as Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager. But fun fact, he appeared in two other Star Trek series over the course of his career, making a total of three, Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, not to mention his appearance in the Star Trek feature Generations. Beyond Trek, Tim's career is peppered with appearances in a broad variety of science fiction and fantasy roles since his debut in the 80s, including Starman, Spaceballs, Amazing Stories, The New Twilight Zone, and Alien Nation. Welcome to the Conclave, Tim. Glad to be here, guys. Good to be here. Welcome, welcome. I, I hope the directions we gave you to the strip all of the damned weren't too hard to follow. No, not at all. I've got GPS. I drew the map in crayon! <laughs> Lord, this oh get rid of that guy once and for all this guy so without further ado let's jump into the juicy stuff would you consider yourself more of a sci-fi guy or a fantasy guy um i prefer science fiction um because uh in the sci-fi world you know you can tell stories in that genre that take place in present day and still have sci-fi elements in them and those tend to be some of my favorite types of science fiction, um, rather than necessarily the ones that all take place in the future. Um, I like being able to jump from the, uh, the time tenses, whether it's past, present, or future, and science fiction in general allows you to do that. So I prefer science fiction. Mm -hmm. And just in general with Star Trek, it tends to hop around quite a bit. <laughs> yes, it does. It does indeed. They managed to find a way to jump around at different time periods in, in terms of stories. You can do whatever you want in sci-fi. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you discovered science fiction? What, what drew you to it? What were some of oh, your favorite pieces? Oh, I, 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 you know, when I was very young, you know, everything from, um, you know, War of the Worlds uh, to the Time Machine, um, movies like that, that just captivated me. I, you know, I was just I was spellbound by these, these films when I first saw them. Um, and they were amazing. I used to watch The Twilight Zone, the original Twilight Zone, um, and, and Outer Limits as well uh, when I was a kid. So uh, that's th those kinds of things got me hooked, and uh, I never looked back. I, I had uh, lots of British comics, so no Marvel, no DC, but we had British versions of that kind of thing, and they were all relentlessly bitter and dark and usually <laughs> politically satirical we, we like our comics to be bitter over oh, here really do all right kind of taking a spin on that same kind of thing you mentioned um how important science fiction is when it comes to storytelling and the different kinds of things we can touch on yeah. um do you believe science fiction is culturally important and and why if so 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Because um, science fiction, you know, not unlike um, the Star Trek series that I worked on, that you know, the, the concept of science fiction, you can tell any kind of story and you can dress that story up in metaphors uh, using uh, characters who are in Star Trek's case, alien, who could portray somebody who might represent someone from Earth in terms of our present day or even our past and tell a story that deals with the interactions of those characters with people who are from Earth and how they treat them, you know, based on the way that these alien creatures and cultures live. We can examine, um, you know, a, an alien culture and compare that alien culture to, to, to human beings. Um, the movie Arrival that was out not long ago, um, mm. you know, how would you communicate with an alien species and how is that species different from us? The differences in these kinds of things that you can portray in science fiction. And, and you're gonna deliberately, for the most part, telling the story, you're deliberately gonna set up this alien character as different than us. And, and, and we wrestle with those kinds of things on earth that have been for centuries, if not millennia, the differences between cultures and how we relate to each other because you know someone else comes from someplace else and they believe in different things, they dress a different way, they eat different food, all the belief systems are different. How do you relate to those people? How do you get along with them? You know, how do you resolve conflicts with them, et cetera? And a lot of times in science fiction, all of the norms that we know as a culture um, and as a human race are challenged in science fiction. You can challenge those things. You can demonstrate how people interact with each other by putting them into the future and showing a different world based on the tech that might exist at that time. Uh, Black Mirror does this as a series. Uh, you can take the technology you have and you can throw it into the future and then, and then examine how people live and react with each other if they were given this kind of technology, how it would change their lives. All those things to me is what, you know, science fiction opens all those doors to, to, uh, to give us a window into uh, who we are and how we behave with each other. So mm -hmm. it, give, it gives us a lot of tools as well, because science fiction has traditionally come up with new language and new ideas that give us thoughts we wouldn't otherwise have had, because you have things like Frankenstein, Big Brother, Brave New World, and we wouldn't have any way of really expressing ideas about uh, totalitarian political regimes unless we had 1984 to fall back on and give us these metaphors and ideas that we can use to put our thoughts together and express what we mean. It sounds a lot like the, the there's a there's a term in psychology called cognitive dissonance, which describes the stress caused from perceiving contradictory information or information that challenges closely held beliefs. And it sounds to me like, you, you know, that maybe you might agree that science fiction plays a role in easing cognitive dissonance. You can take the circumstance we might have, you know, today, and I'm wondering, you know, uh, if any of the uh, current Star Trek shows, just as an example, uh, science fiction shows, I think um, will tap upon what is actually happening in society today as we speak. I mean, we're, mm -hmm. we're now experiencing uh, nationally, if not even on the world stage, sometimes this concept of people not believing their own eyes and ears, not believing what they've actually lived through and experienced, but uh, believing what someone's telling them, which is patently insane. Um, mm -hmm. And and captivated by it, almost like a cult, which is basically what it is. The last conclave, we, we discussed uh, the power of storytelling to shape reality and, and the power that, that cult leaders can have over controlling and shaping our views. Yes, and it, you know, in 1984, taps upon all that to some degree. Um, 
getting information from a source and only believing that information and not mm. actually believing, again, in some cases, your own eyes and ears. Um, you know, I mean, if somebody's dying from a disease and they deny that they have the disease as they're dying from the disease, uh, I don't know how much farther you can go into the rabbit hole of, of, of cultism if, you're, if, the, if, you, if that's what's happening. I, that's, that's insane. That's a plot for a science fiction movie. Um, I worked on a series recently, 4400, and the character I played believed in conspiracy theories to the point that he believed his own daughter was a creature, okay, not human anymore, mm. because wow. he listened to somebody on the radio who talked about that, you know, uh, and that's the character I actually played in that episode. The whole entire episode was not quite that way, but that's what my storyline was. And, uh, and I have since not really seen any other series projects or, or episodics that, or even films that dealt with like a, on a societal scale, how do you tackle that or present that in, the, in a future setting, you know, and, and see how that society behaves because uh, that is a profoundly destructive force. On a small scale, it can be a group of people you know, Jim Jones size or smaller, right? Yeah. Not a big deal. It's an enclave. It's a, it's an, it's an outpost. It's a, it doesn't have any effect on voting here for, for, for political leaders and uh, running the country and uh, what, you know, how the budget is spent, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't have anything to do with that kind of stuff. So those groups can exist without having a real impact of any kind really on, on society as a whole. But these things here, you know, in which your own, representative powers that be in government that's supposed to be overseeing the, 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 the running of the country are supporting yeah. the most bizarre, crazy crap. That's when it becomes on that scale, it's absolutely lethal to yes. any absolutely. intelligent, you know, uh, democratic system. And so that stuff is to me where it's almost like marching through this dystopian, if you will, sci-fi story. Because that's what it is. It's a dystopian sci-fi story. We're already there. Yeah, We're already there. it's kind of hard to write science fiction about something while it's actually happening. Yeah, right. And, and <laughs> how how do you talk about a dystopia when you're in one? Yeah, yeah. I I think there's one series that kind of deals with some of the the, the, uh, the two sides of of something like that coin is uh, raised by wolves. Uh, Ridley Scott. Oh yeah. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Ah, that thing is crazy uh, intense. And they he they choose to go sort of to that way in the future, way in the future, with this war back and forth between two different belief systems. Yeah. It's two different belief systems that literally come to blows, which is fascinating. I mean, there, there you, you have it. I mean, we've experienced it in, in, in some instances in the history in the United States. We did it with the, uh, the Salem witch trials here on a small scale and localized scale. We've, you know, We've had to deal with these kinds of things. Europe had to deal with, you know, Protestant versus Catholic. And I mean, you know, there's all these different ways that, that the Catholics versus the Muslims. It's, it's, we've done this thing before in terms of belief systems. And, uh, and we still, to some degree, do have these kinds of conflicts today. But, um, but that's one of the things that I love about science fiction is that it, 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 can, it can cover important social and sociopolitical topics, but otherwise might cause them to reject the idea out of hand if it was presented to them in context. It abstracts it just enough to prevent someone from 
engaging their like rejection filters and gets mm-hmm. them start thinking about things like the the classic uh, original series episode where like you know how are these guys different oh he's black and white on the other side yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly well that's yeah. um that's actually how yeah that, that's how the, the concept of robotics was invented. The, the original, I think it's 1921 play, R.U.R., Rossum's Universal Robotics was a political play about what if you could create mechanical men to do all your work for you and they get treated as an underclass. And it was about the proletariat and all of this thing. And the <laughs> term for worker was robota in the original language, which became robot. So science fiction has always been about this idea of looking at projecting political themes into the future as a way of dealing with them as they're happening. And there's a rich seam of that. We can, we can talk about that till the cows come home. Sure. And also a forbidden planet as well. The, the idea of things coming back that we thought we'd evolved beyond is a big theme in forbidden planet. That's something we need to, to link to because that's definitely something that comes up in this film. Yes, um, in that case, the id, you know, mm. it's a Jungian sort of concept in, in Forbidden Planet. And also Time Machine, you know, he tries to go through time, going forward in time in the future, thinking he can get away from all the turmoil and the war. And the yeah, the, this increasing hubris that we yeah. move forward and we get past it and it'll <laughs> we'll never come back. It. We've, he, we've got, we figured it out and then and he back it all comes. It, and he keeps finding it over and over and over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Morlocks yeah. are always waiting under the ground to come up and devour him. specific one for this one uh this is also interesting to find out uh on my end gene roddenberry cited forbidden planet as an influence how much of a creative debt do you personally think star trek owes to forbidden planet um i I think it's it's a it's a percentage i don't think the majority of it to forbidden planet because i mean forbidden planet deals again we talked about it earlier you know is dealing with basically the, the the id the the dark side of the human behavior <clears throat> and it's simply they take that and they manifest that in the form of this alien creature um that is nothing more than the thoughts of this man based on this alien technology that he's able that it, it's it's able to manifest this creature uh, which is fascinating in itself um but star trek you know as a series is about exploration it's about exploration. To me, I think there would be other films that would be more influential, and I can't really think of one offhand that he might be influenced by. I could think of, you know, like uh, Twilight Zone and things like that, to a, to mm. an example that might be more uh, influential to something like Star Trek, where you do have a few episodes that deal with space travel, landing on another planet, discovering this or that. You know, what was it, the one with Roddy McDowell's famous one, where he, he lands on the planet? Planet of the Apes? The spaceship. No, no. This is a, a Twilight Zone, black and white Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah. Where he lands on the planet and he's terrified about coming out of the ship because he's afraid of what's outside. And his, his uh, partner, the other astronaut who's with him, is injured. And he doesn't, he doesn't survive the, the, uh, the mission. But he tells him, you have to go out. You have to go outside. Don't worry. You know, it'll be fine. If there's people out there, they'll be just like us or whatever comes out like that. So he tries to, to convince him to go outside the ship, because otherwise, what's the point of them making the, the journey, the long journey and him sacrificing his life if he never goes outside the ship? And so finally he does, and he sees this beautiful woman 
human looks just like just like you know a, an earthling and then some other earthlings that are there and they there's he's so impressed he says oh my god you're right you know they they do like they look just like him and they take him to a place where he can live like it looks just like an earth home they said oh we re recreated this based on where you came from and such and such and blah 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 so we felt you'd be comfortable here and then they close the door they leave him and then he can't get out of the door he's like locked in and all of a sudden this big wall opens up and these people are all staring at him and he's a subject in a zoo he's in the zoo and the, the last line of this in that episode is you're right they are just like us <laughs> oh. oh my god i remember so that cool. one that's oh. the that's the that's the kind of stuff that 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 i think that roddenberry the stories they told in Star Trek, that's the kind of stuff that, I mean, we wrestled with it on our, on our series. We wrestled with uh, where does the soul go after death? Mm, yeah. We wrestled with that. We wrestled with origins, with evolution. Um, we, we wrestled with that. Um, you know, we, there was a lot of things. We wrestled with, you know, assuming that someone is bad, aggressive, evil based on how they look. Oh, like, I remember that one. Yeah. Remember that one? Yes. Yeah. Based on their appearance, you find out that the alien that looks like the predator, basically, just this hideous, ugly, monstrous, frightening creature. You know, uh, one of our crew has been told that they are the aggressors, that they are the terrorists, that they're the ones marauding and killing. And it turns out the humans who look just like humans are the ones who are the aggressors, the ones that are terrorizing the other race. And they're the ones that doing, are doing all the bad things to them. At the very end, you realize the tables are turned. You just assumed that what the humans were telling you was true because of the way the aliens looked. They well, looked the easy down. answer is always tempting, isn't it? The, the, isn't it the answer that, that just feels, feels more easy to assimilate into your mind. You just go <laughs> with it because it's easier than actually thinking things through and yes. doing oh, well, the work. And, and, it's, it, and it's natural. It's, mm. it's, it's part of our DNA. You know, my buddy just, you know, he said the other day, he says, well, at present, we don't have world wars. You know, we've had world wars since we could pick up a rock and throw it. And at present, we don't have a world war. We could have a big fat one that could take us out, but we don't have one right now. And we haven't had one since World War II. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that we have sort of evolved to a point where we've gotten maybe a little farther along from being just a giant, violent, killing thing. But I talked about, you know, he asked me about what do you, why, why we've been killing each other and doing this for so long. He says, we evolved. I said, well, we evolved from more than likely a, 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 a chimpanzee-like uh, species, as it were, that's no longer here. We, that species obviously went away. But, you know, we said, well, what about the bonobo chimps who are peaceful and they don't do the kind of killing and stuff that are the regular chimpanzees? He says, well, you know, the race that we evolved from wasn't like the bonobo. They were different. And, you know, here we are. And we are an aggressive, combative, violent species. That's what we are, you know, and we think we're all that because we have a brain. Um, so now you're giving, you know, a loaded gun to a five-year-old. Essentially, you give, you give this violent race a, a large brain, may have the capacity of doing all these things. You're not going to be able to breed that out. It's going to take a long time. Yeah, maybe at the moment we've just reached the point where we can at least imagine what we would look like if we had got past it. Yeah. And we can at least tell stories about it and say, yeah, this we, is what it will be like. But we're yeah, not quite is, there yet. 
Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and, and we've evolved to the point where we can actually try to discover and figure out uh, what our origins may be in terms of just the whole, the entire universe. But ultimately, the, the, the path that we're taking, I, you know, talk to people, I've talked to a history teacher once about the fact, I said, well, the founding fathers created a document that was supposed to, to, to help the country function, a document that was set up to govern the country 270 years ago. Can you imagine creating a document today? designed to, to govern the country 270 years from now. What will life be like 270 years from now? And that's a science fiction story in itself. We have to imagine where our technology and advancements are going to go. AI will probably mm -hmm. become sentient. And as Asimov writes about in Robots of Dawn, they may well need constitutional rights. They may well need human rights because they're that smart that they have reached a level of consciousness because of the computing power that we've been able to come up with. AI is going to dominate us very shortly in this century. And if 270 years from now, how would your country be governed? What would your belief systems be like? Will you still have traditional religions the way that they are now? Will people still be fighting um, over those religions or battling each other over those things? How will we be living our daily lives on this planet with a population over what, 8 billion, maybe 9 billion people? with the resources shrinking as they are, will we eventually come together you know, as a global society and put the priorities not at the very top for the 5% of the people in the, who have everything on the planet, or will we have a, a more shared equal sort of effort to try to create a society or a world that we can actually survive on? You know, we can't all just hop over to Mars, man. This place has to be something that's, you know, um, in Robots of Dawn, an Asimov story that they're Martian colonies and they have fixed populations and everything is perfect and pristine on their Martian colonies. And they want nothing to do with anybody from Earth. So Earth has been relegated to the trash heap in terms of this horrible, you know, God-forsaken, you know, rabble-filled mm. place. And they want nothing to do with anyone from Earth. They are born and raised on Mars, and they have a fixed population that can never go beyond a certain number. So it's fascinating. Again, and in that story, obviously, the uh, robots, the androids, it's about the murder of an android. And that's illegal yeah. to kill an android. So how do, you, how do you govern? How do you, I mean, the founding fathers have managed to do this. That document they created is technically still functional and malleable today. 270 years from when they wrote it, man. I mean, come on. They, if, they, if they were dropped in the middle of Times Squares, their heads would explode. You know, True. jet planes and high tech and cars. And I mean, come on, man. Nothing. They would not have been able to imagine uh, anything like that. Uh, and what will it be like? Again, 270 years from now, they dropped us in the middle of this Times Square where our heads are going to explode. Even with the technical knowledge we have now, we cannot imagine what that would be like. 270 years from now that's the uh that, that reminds me of that meme that was making the circuit of uh somebody asks uh the founding father was asked today should they regulate automatic weapons in california the what in the where <laughs> <laughs> the what in the where <laughs> so you brought up like yeah the rights of robots which eventually will become a pressing issue and then also the the violence within humanity and these two aspects really touch on uh characters 
like Robbie the Robot in Forbidden Planet, which eventually spawned characters like Spock, uh, Data, and of course your character Tuvok. Um, and you kind of get that that sort of same vibe with, you know, Data uh, in his episode of Measure of a Man, where we were basically putting the rights of a robot on trial. Uh, or for Tuvok, uh, those, those, uh, those base... Uh, uh, violence with inherent to the the Vulcan species, uh, we all kind of have these characters that are that are non-human that are still seeking their humanity and where they fit in society. Uh, why do you think science fiction so often features characters like these? Well, again, because science fiction reflects a lot of times reflects the way we are as people. Um, you know, and in my character, you know, the Vulcan species, they were so violent that they almost wiped themselves off the, you know, off the planet. So they understood that if they didn't do anything uh, to stop that, they weren't going to exist. They were going to cease to exist. The uh, estimate for intelligent species that might be in our galaxy alone, which is 100,000 light years across, is shockingly low. I mean, it's ridiculously low. Um, made by astrophysicists, way lower than what the Drake equation originally uh, calculated or predicted. And it's because one of those reasons is that the factors is not just obviously the, the variables that come into place to, to, for a civilization to rise, but the, the, also the possibility that civilization may wipe itself out. Great That's filter. one of the variables that they have to look at is that they may rise to an intelligent species and civilization and then completely annihilate themselves. We are capable of doing that today. We can do that. The very least set ourselves back to the stone age, you know, with maybe a handful of people living underground in some whatever cave for I don't know how many years. We can wipe out all of our technology, wipe out all of our living space, wipe out most of our planets and, and animals and everything else just with nuclear weapons alone. We can do that right now, today. And, and the threat of that always looms. The characters like the Tuvok's character being so violently, they were going to annihilate each other, that they had to come up with something. And so you've got, you, you would wonder, since that's an alien species, they might have had more time to come to grips with that and then figure out a way around it. And the same thing I was talking about before, 270 years from now, 300 years from now, will we be able to <clears throat> overcome that? The hmm. Star Trek world deals with, first of all, cash. And who has the most of it doesn't factor into mm -hmm. Star Trek, the Star Trek world. I mean, that's not how the society is set up. Post-scarcity, so, yeah. It's not about who's got all the gold. It's about sort of collective getting together and figuring things out on a collective basis. And that that is kind of where we'd have to go, you know, in that direction in order to avoid, you know, again, annihilating ourselves. We have to share the Earth's resources, figure out a way to uh, live within the limits of these resources. Yes, there possibly will be colonization of other worlds, whether it be Mars or someplace else. We have to figure out how we're going to live off world as well. What are we going to do with all the people? Are we going to limit our population? You know, China tried it not that long ago. They, mm -hmm. they, they're, they're at the breaking point of their numbers and they realize, well, we got to do something. So they were limiting the birth rate of their population. They were seeing into the future in that respect. So um, I think Jim the, the robot character... Yes, on Forbidden Planet, absolutely. It's the it's the the, uh, the the it's a machine. It's 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 base reasoning, you know. Tuvok character is base logic. It doesn't. It, the emotion just doesn't play a factor in anything like mm -hmm. that. Now, once in a while, my character had to you know, yeah, had to rely on something <laughs> like that in order to get him out of trouble. 
Um, but but for the most part, you know, that's not what the reliance was. The reliance is on cold, hard logic. And China, in their limiting of their of their birth rate, was cold, hard logic. There was no emotion in that. It's logic. It was simply based on a practical, functional logic. You know, we gang, we got a problem here. There's too many of us. What are we going to suppose, do? Yeah, I suppose the question, whether you're dealing with a robot or an alien or someone from another country, always comes down to the same one. I'm not like you. You're not like me. What are we going to do? How are we going to work this out? Yes. And it's I'm a question that will always need to be answered, whether you're talking to Robbie the robot or whoever. Yeah. And, and I don't know if uh, I think worldwide we are going to be in a population crisis. That is going to happen. The population is going to explode by 2050 and it'll probably crash not long after that. It is going to happen because there's no breaks, there's no controls on it. It's just going to be masses and masses and masses of people. We have belief systems in, in, on the planet that still don't want you to use contraception for God's sakes. And that's a lot of people that are, you know, the population is going to continue to grow, continue to grow, continue to grow, continue to grow. And it's not only the resources that each individual takes, it's also the, it's also the, uh, the waste that that individual produces, which we also have to deal with. Yeah. So that is, those decisions, man, are cultural and societal and global. And somebody somewhere has to come up with the plan and idea and people have to be aware of and educated to some degree about all of that stuff and you're, you're and this is where we come back to science fiction coming up with ideas and testing out in a yeah. safe way maybe we do this maybe we maybe do we that. do that yeah so it sounds to me kind of like characters like those are vehicles for the exploration of the human condition science fiction is a is a thought experiment that we can engage in as a species and kind of test out ideas. I think that's one of the one of the reasons why it was so important that during the 50s and 60s with like the Twilight Zone episodes that you were talking about. Some of my favorites, like the one with, um, I blanked on his name, where he's in the library, in the basement, and all the Burgess bombs Meredith, off. wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Burgess yeah. Meredith, Burgess yeah. Meredith. Yes, And then yes. he comes out and he's like, finally, all the time in the world to read all the books I ever wanted to, you know, but like, like all of these moments where they were showing people, this is what it looks like when there's an, and you know, it really built a sympathy within the mind of the public of like, this, these are hot. This is a hot stove. We've already touched it once and we realized that it burns. It and we could burn the whole house down, figuratively speaking. Yes. And, and you know, there was a lot of uh, movement at the time, too. There's, you know, the, the, sorry, the establishment of the time wanted to do away with all this stuff is subversive. You know, so Twilight Zone was constantly being subjected to like, you know, oh, this is subversive thought. You know, these these writers who are writing about, you know, what a, a, like books like Alas Babylon and things showing what a what a post-nuclear Holocaust future would look like were, were seen as subversive. You know, they weren't banned because, you know, America doesn't tend to ban books, but um, well, not until today, not until recently. No, yeah. well, I mean, there's always attempts to there, there have yeah. been attempts to. But in general, like those those tend to be more privately driven and religiously driven. Than... You also touched a couple of things here that, that I, I was interested to, to hear from you about. The, I, re, I remember seeing uh, some of your astronomy photos, and it seems like you have a passion for astronomy because you mentioned the, about the size of the galaxy. You want to tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I, I started uh, pursuing astronomy when I was uh, uh, in my 30s and, and I just did it on my own. I, nobody, you know, sort of took my hand and guided me or showed me anything. I just decided, well, you know, I'd like to, you know, to get a small telescope and take a look at the, the planets with Saturn, Jupiter, the moon, things like that are really impressive if you have a, a halfway decent scope. It doesn't have to be that expensive at all, but just something to be able to look at them and see the detail on them. And of course, once I started doing that, then I went, you know, I just continued to expand the hobby and, and the number of telescopes, the sizes of them, um, the types of them, and, uh, and to start looking at more objects in deep space. And since that time, I've always been mostly an optical astronomer. And um, so just, just looking through the eyepiece and seeing it with naked eye. And only recently have I gotten into doing photography because of the nature of the equipment that's now available. Mm -hmm. um, what they are designing for telescopes now is absolutely insane. You can image a nebula with colors, okay? And in, inside of an, it takes about an hour to do it. Instead of buying a giant piece of glass, a big refractor with, uh, that's, you know, eight, ten, twenty thousand $20,000 plus the CCD cameras and the laptop and everything else. Oh, and four or five hours a night for three or four nights in a row to image the same thing. My telescope that I bought will do it in four minutes and it's done. And uh, so and compared to the little one, that the portable one that they just designed, mine is bigger. Not that much. It's still relatively portable. Um, and it's and not it, a competition. <laughs> yes, it, it, it is. It is. It is, it is a stunning instrument, and I did not own a computerized telescope up until I got that one. I do the imaging now for deep space uh, objects. It doesn't do planets in the moon. It's only designed for doing deep space objects, which I was always looking at with naked eye. Now I can see the structure of these objects in detail. Um, I've seen, you know, uh, galaxies that have supernovas that have gone off, and I can see the supernova in that galaxy. I've tracked asteroids. Um, I've done a project with uh, cooperation with NASA on an asteroid occultation with this telescope. It'll do exoplanet transits. Um, oh, it'll wow. Do, it'll do, uh, oh. you know, it, it's pretty damned amazing, this telescope. So my appreciation for astronomy in general has, has, has been there as long as my appreciation for science fiction. Space science is something that came right alongside that. Because at the end of the day, we started as nothing more than gas and uh, helium and, and hydrogen gas. We're able to look back and examine where we came from. To quote that Carl Sagan, we are the universe's way we of are experiencing the itself. Exactly. We are experiencing ourselves. We are star stuff. And in fact, we are. So. A truly terrifying thought. I mean, the <laughs> makes me just feel minuscule. The idea of staring out across such distances. I remember looking up, you know, the largest and the smallest things in the universe and the biggest things we can find. And this star is bigger than this star, than this collection of stars, than this globular cluster, than this great accumulation of matter that's loosely bound together, that's bigger than multiple galaxies. And it, it's mind-blowing, but it's also terrifying. And there's part of me that thinks, no, I don't want to know all of this. This is too much for my tiny little mammalian brain. It's too big. It's too far. You got a glimpse yeah. of the total perspective vortex, did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You take if you know, I'll give you the real shocker. I mean, if you really want to know what and what are you talking about in terms of perspective, if you really want a, an idea of how 
how vast it is. If you take a grain of sand, one grain of sand, put it on your fingertip and stretch your arm out up to the sky, stretch your arm out. The, the amount of space that that little grain of sand covers in that tiny little space, they have found 5,000 galaxies. That horrifies me. That that is <laughs> there's a terror to that, as well as a wonder. There's a terror that anything could be happening in any of those galaxies that we don't know about and we right. never will. That and we correct. cannot know about. You can draw a line around everything we can ever possibly know because of the limits of the speed of light. And it's uh it it is it is terrifying to think about the, the scales involved and the distances involved, and then to think that on the cosmic scale, we are actually surprisingly massive. We're bigger than 99.9% .9 of things in the planet. Most things are bacteria or plankton or, or we are actually gigantic and we are tiny compared to yeah. what's out there. Oh, mm -hmm. absolutely. And what's really crazy is if you go far enough out there, we should find an exact duplicate of ourselves. And in fact, an exact duplicate of this show that we're on right now. <gasps> if you go far enough out there, theoretically, according to astrophysics, we should find a duplicate of everything. Well, we in, a, in an infinite universe, yes. In an infinite universe. But if the universe is anything less than infinite, then the chance becomes infinitesimal. So yeah, the, that's the big know. question. Is it infinite? Does it go that's on forever? Even more horror, even more yeah. terror <laughs> that you're bringing into my life. <laughs> Sounds to me enough, like it all is of enough you. to make your head hurt, but here we go. I mean, that's what we're, you know, we're dealing with, you know, we're dealing with uh, science fiction and science fiction in a, as a genre examines that kind of thing. You know, um, you know, I know we were. I don't see how you could examine it any other way, really. Yeah. Yeah. Some of these concepts are so big and they're so, so yeah. great. You need science fiction just to have the tools to imagine some of these things in any meaningful way. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, 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 again, when I look back at Forbidden Planet, it is it is a science fiction show that, you know, the astronauts do land on this this alien world. Mm. And um, and it's interesting that it's almost like um, it's almost like the uh, Martian Chronicles and Ray Bradbury's story. Um, it's similar to that because the alien civilization is long gone. The, the 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 aliens, the technology is still there. The buildings are still there, but they're gone, and they don't really go into detail as to what happened to them. Um, and the Martian Chronicles, since they have found this advanced Martian civilization that's so much older than ours. The one question they want to ask or find out is if they knew and found and discovered the meaning of life, which is interesting, right? From a science fiction thing, it's interesting that the humans in that story figure that since they're farther ahead in evolution mm. and intelligence, have they discovered the meaning of life? And they and in the Martian Chronicles, what they discover is the Martians, the the, the, the information they get from the from that advanced civilization is that. They figured that life is its own meaning. Life yeah. is its own meaning, which means real fortune cookie answer that they got. Well, it's it's they? basically that. It's basically that, that you know, we are born to do what we do. We mm -hmm. are here to do what we do.
you know, the bees do what they do. The polar bear does what it does. The, uh, you know, uh, the creatures on the planet are born to do what they do. We are born to do what we do. You know, sometimes um, I read that. Yeah, yeah, I read it when I was about 16. Yeah, our purpose essentially is to is to survive. Our purpose is to procreate. That's really what we're here for. I mean, that's what we're just another life form on this planet doing what all the other life forms do. We're just able to think about it more. The, 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 in, in, in Forbidden Planet, that alien species is gone and all that's left behind is their technology. So it's interesting as to, you know, to try to, they, they, to figure out what happened to them. You know, they don't really spend a lot of time discussing what happened to them in that movie. Yeah, they, they can make an assumption that presumably they had an id and they had their own id monsters, but we, we can't know that. There's no, there's no, yeah, there's no physical evidence. If, I mean, if they land on the planet and the alien technology is all destroyed and everything's all mm. rubble and stuff like that, well, then they can assume that, okay, there was a battle and a war and they wiped themselves out or if there was some remnants of bodies or something like that laying around and there's nothing. It's just that they abandoned everything and left. It looks like they just left the place because all the stuff still works. It's all still functional. So where did they go? And they never examined that. And I think if it was a modern version of Forbidden Planet, they'd want to examine that and figure out what the hell happened there. Uh, what is it? The character from your British sci-fi, uh, uh, Quartermass. Quartermass. Oh, Quartermass in the pit Quartermass and so and forth. Yes, yes. The pit, in the pit. That alien, the Martians came, they were warlike. They were warlike. They were destroying themselves they were killing each other then they were an advanced alien species they had technology beyond anything they had on earth and they what were they doing killing themselves and they you know went in in that story they end up inhabiting you know their their spirit or whatever their their power inhabits mm-hmm. the people that it's a, it becomes manifested in human beings and they start turning on each other they they haven't changed either in the future the same thing as a time machine we keep going keep going keep going we still find the same shit so yeah (laughs) the question is again in terms of the estimate of intelligent life in the universe yeah those numbers are small they're frighteningly small uh the number that that they came up with and this is just three or four months ago that i read this in the galaxy which is again a hundred thousand light years across the milky way that's a shitload of planets and stars they estimate only 35 to 200 intelligent civilizations that might exist right now and the favored number is 35. 35. 35. We may as, we may as well be butt ass alone. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the chances of us even stumbling across any of them by accident are it. next to Forget nothing. Infinitesimal as far as our brains can comprehend. That's correct. And so, where does that leave us? We're it, man. We might as well be it. And that's it for this planet. This, this place is here, man. We managed to get here. The entire universe could have been spawned without the ability to produce life. Mm. Because the multiverse concept is what they're believing in now. They're theorizing Mm. multiverse. If there's multiverses, some of them will not be capable of producing life. Mm. Because the same variables that go into the formation of life on Earth, just just the shit that has to go right in our solar system, the formation of Earth, the conditions of, this, of, the, of the solar system, the Goldilocks zone, the Earth itself, the size, the iron core, goddamn everything. There's a thousand variables just for Earth alone. Yeah. The universe has to have a whole trainload of shit that has to go right 
in order to allow for all the elements to come together for life. Yeah, back, something, uh, if you want to read something that'll really chill you uh, right down to your toes is uh, read about vacuum decay. And you think about if you're talking about the multiverse, you know, there's got to be some universes where vacuum decay has occurred, you know? Right. Yeah, there's just certain elements that didn't line up in that multiverse and there's no life at all. I mean, that, that's crazy. And that's if, if one accepts the fact that there's a multiverse because they're still trying to figure out where this one came from. Yeah. You know, and, and as a so on the other hand, if you accept that theory that, that there's, there's different uh, bubbling pots in different universes that right. could produce different things, it also makes life inevitable as well. Rare, but rare. inevitable sooner or later. Sooner or later and very rare. And, and even if you accept the bubbles of universes, where did those start from? You know, <laughs> you don't have a, we don't have a beginning point, which is what we absolutely crave as a, as a species. We, we crave a beginning, a middle, and an end. We have to have a starting point, and we don't have that. I like your, uh, no. your, your point, though, going back to the Ray Bradbury Martian Chronicles, you know, the, 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 you know, the meaning of life is that we are to be what we are. Um, it's a very sort of Alan Watts Buddhist kind of perspective to it. You know, we are just, we are here to do what we do. We, we are just one window through which the universe experiences itself. Right. right. You know, and that we should just be chill with the fact that we're an animal species that does what we do. Exactly. And that's simply what the Martian Chronicles sort of theory, you know, puts forth is that, yeah, this is it. This is what we do. You know, there's, you don't have to overthink it. Um, yeah, there's kind we, of comfort in that. Yeah, yeah, there is. If you think about it, it is actually. I mean, if you think about where we came from, how we got here, we're, we're evolving. And, you know, and we will continue to evolve as long as we're capable of doing so. And eventually what's really interesting is, is that our technology is going to surpass natural evolution. Our technology will take us beyond all of this. This will be like the Stone Age. Uh, what we have today will be like the Stone Age. It, it, it will be as if we just dropped out of the trees if people in the future look back at us now, you know, compared to what it could be. We will potentially evolve to become a machine planet. We will potentially evolve beyond corporeal bodies. That can happen um, eventually. And what will that be like as far as us as a species when we are no longer, you know, corporeal? When we're a machine planet, we're, we're mostly machine, you know, um, mostly robotic, mostly a consciousness in a gel, you know, um, or plasma. Partly man, partly machine. Only some of us lucky enough to be British. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, <laughs> so kind of to switch gears a bit, we're going to start to wrap up a little bit. Um, Tim, what would you say if someone were to order you to comb the desert? <laughs> I don't want to look for that shit. <laughs> Fair enough. Because you didn't end up finding it. <laughs> All right. And with that, how severe a source of cinemania do you believe Forbidden Planet to be? Um... Oh, I think it's a big source uh, of cinemania, you know, um, it's a classic in its own right. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it should absolutely be part of that. Um, it's a, a major candidate. You know, I can rattle off a few more down the line, but that one certainly deserves to be part of that. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Would you need, were you uh, to scrutinize any other films of Cinemania, which would you choose? I think to date, and if I had to put at the top of the list of something that's, that's worthy of Cinemania, it's the original concept of the Planet of the Apes. Sorry, that's, mm. that to me is the pinnacle of man, just, just original science, pure, unadulterated science fiction storytelling. That's what yeah. that is. Planet of the Apes. That original concept is just to me one of the most fascinating. Absolutely that, the most fascinating. That shocker ending too. Oh, it's just the, just the bare bones concept, man. I mean, I was around. You guys weren't around. I was around when that first one came out. And oh, boy, jaw-dropping. We came mm. out of the theater. We were blown away. We could not believe what we had just seen. It was wow. just insane. Uh, never forget it. Never, you know, even the later incarnations are all fun to watch. But the original storyline, good God almighty, man. Woo! I know. I, I found it. incredibly shocking the first time I saw it. I mean, the idea of allowing Charlton Heston into space, I for one (laughs) just (laughs) collapsed. I believe the name is pronounced Charlton Heston. Yeah, and and, and on the opposite side of the (laughs) on the opposite side of the coin of that, the the two top movies, well, I want to say they're two top, roughly the two top that, that, that I would put in the in that category, but for different uh, different reasons, would be either the abyss is one, and mm. um, and recently Ad Astra number two. That you know that turkey man is just I could not. I had so many problems with that film. Absolutely oh. appalling, appallingly bad. <laughs> we need you to send a radio message. So let's move you to another planet to do it because we have no better way of transmitting <laughs> your words than to move you to a radio yeah. booth yeah. halfway across the solar system. What yeah. was that all about? How dare they, frankly? Yeah, and let's, let's plant a research space station lab, you know, all the way out there in the middle of nowhere with giant baboons on them to study mm. whatever in the fuck they're studying. Oh, a, yeah. a, ra- a radiant wave of energy that becomes more intense the further away it goes from its source. I mean, come on. The more I hear about That's... this movie, the more I'm like, this is definitely something we should be looking into. Oh, you you definitely, you know, as far as the flip side of Cinemania, the, uh, you know, the, the not worthy side of Cinemania, that, that, oh. that, thing is, that thing is at the top, dude. And I... I, I am just appalled at the amount of money they spent to make it and all this, just the goddamn worst thing I've ever seen. I mean, it's just, <laughs> and, and, and you know, I've seen a few mm-hmm. in the past. I do have a couple of that I don't like, like uh, The Abyss and, a, and maybe one or two others. Um, AI is one of them, maybe The Abyss and some other stuff. But I, I believe you had some strong opinions about Event Horizon. And, and Event Horizon I put up there at the top. And Event Horizon only because only because they had the concept. And, it, and for that matter, so did Ad Astra, had a wonderful concept. They, they could have just played that thing so well. Um, but, and what you, all you see is, you know, all I can envision is the, is the 
idiot sitting around the conference table with the three blackberries talking about, you know, redline the script and we got to put in this, we got to put in that, we got to put in this. <laughs> yeah, that story's great, but we got to put in this and we got to put the idiot who can't read. Anyway, that the, 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 the event horizon had the concept. And again, somebody in the room said, you know, well, we, we have to put in blood and guts and horror. We have to make it horror. It's mm -hmm. not scary. There's nothing happening. It's too, you know, it's a brilliant concept. That concept is brilliant. You know, a ship that can jump to the opposite side of the galaxy, that can warp time and space, that can make that transit with a crew, and then the ship comes back and there's no crew. What happened to the crew? It's a and they're going to examine, oh my God, man, you can yeah. open up all kinds of, would, you know, can they take the ship? It has the drive to the where it went and find out what happened to the crew. Is the crew still on the ship, but in a different dimension? And they interact with them from time to dude. You could have all now. Star Trek did that. Ah, exactly. Based into a different direct dimension. But I'm really, I'm seeing the telltale signs of Cinemania as we started to discuss <laughs> Event Horizon. So perhaps you can act as Pontifex of Presentment when our conclave meets to scrutinize Event Horizon. Perhaps. Well, we can scrutinize that one or we can do Ad Astra. I can tell you right. Ad Astra, mm. that's got even more to scrutinize, let me tell you. Uh, you're gonna scrutinize have to, Ed Asna. Everybody's going to have to watch it. You guys are going to all have to go watch it. Uh, you haven't seen it. Uh, uh, Andre hasn't seen it, right? Ethan, Correct. you haven't seen it? No. Okay, so the only one that's seen it is... Uh, okay. I've seen it. <laughs> Yeah, you and, I, you and I are the only ones who <laughs> had to had to sit through the misery of that film. Um, <laughs> guys, you're going to see some shit in there that you're just going to be shaking your head, man. You're just going to oh, be shaking boy. your head. It's the most outrageously stupid stuff mm. that they put in this film. Where the story, the story, the story, the, the actual concept is amazing. I mean, it's a really cool story they could have unfolded that story uh tommy lee jones plays um, um brad Pitt. oh yeah the father i mean he's plays yeah, the father. yeah and and he is he was sent on a mission to uh discover or explore life in the outer reaches of the solar system mm. with a crew on a ship and they lose track and touch of them they can't Oof. reach them they can't find them what happened to the ship that's the story and I would have watched a film just with Tommy Lee Jones and Brad Pitt acting opposite each other for a while. They could have kept it simple and it would have been fine, it, but they have to a, a story <laughs> bring in the monkeys. Yeah, they have to bring story. the monkeys into it. It's Planet of the Apes all over Wait, again. And oh my moon God. buggies and moon buggies. What's with the moon buggies, man? <laughs> I haven't seen the this. Moon I've got buggies. To... What the hell was that supposed to be? That's nuts. I was looking at that going, are you serious? Are you actually bloody serious? Well, you can't be, you got, you're mad. You're mad. Nobody's going to be doing that, man. I don't care what kind of future you got on the moon. They're not going to be doing that. So yes, the, 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 the simple arc, the arc of the story should have been him getting to find out what happened to his father. It's his father who's a hero. He's like a space-sparing legend, this guy. It was a massive missed opportunity. The really good story was good story. all in the subtext, and they ignored it to just look at... 100%. Fancy. Yeah. And they could, it could have been, you know, get what that, what's that? Do it, it's an hour and a half. Don't make it any longer than the next pee break. Just like 90 minutes, 95, maybe, you know, mm. 100 minutes. Just get in there. Yeah. Get that art. Get that going there. Tell a good story. The concept is there. They just, there was no execution of it. 
So, so dear so listeners, that is that is Ad Astra. If you wish to Ad experience Astra. this piece of Cinemania, we will maybe, perhaps, scrutinize in future. Uh, while we wrap up our conclave, do you have any pluggables, any anywhere we can find you on the internet? For me? Oh. Uh, yeah. My website is uh, timrusswebpage.com. If you type in my name, Tim Russ, on Google, it's, uh, it's going to be on the front page. Uh, mm-hmm. My website is there. It talks about what I'm doing, what the appearances I'm going to be making in the next uh, six months or whatever. Uh, personal appearances. Uh, it's got my band gigs on there. Um, I post stuff on Twitter, although most of it's political. So be warned. <laughs> A lot of it's political. Be forewarned. Um, and Facebook as well. Same thing. Uh, uh, on there is Tim Russ, uh, on Twitter is Tim Russ. You can, I mean, my picture is there. You can see it's me mm-hmm. and, um, Instagram, uh, I think is TR Vulcan. Um, but if you, <laughs> type in, if you type in Tim Russ, eventually you see my picture. So just go into my name for all that stuff. And I, I post things on there, but again, it's all, a lot of it's political. And I, every once in a while I put some gags on there just for chuckles, but, uh, a lot mm-hmm. of it's political. So um that's where i am i do post my music gigs every once in a while uh, performances i do put clips on there once in a while for the band and stuff um and trailers for the projects that i'm working on now and then Heck i've got yeah. some stuff in the works I've, it's all in development so there's not much to talk about until i get it off the ground oh it's sweet yeah fair enough well thank you so 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 much yes. for doing this this is oh, this pleasure. is awesome <laughs> indeed thank you very much uh, those are fun know, topics they're fun topics to talk about. Um, uh, I've always enjoyed them. Um, been a fan of science fiction for the vast majority of my life. So, and it's not going to change. Yeah, mm-hmm. me too. Yeah, on a on a personal note, me and my sister, as we were sort of growing up, not much science fiction on TV in England. Not much quality science fiction at all. And the one thing we always used to watch was Star Trek. We started with Next Gen. And it kept us together because we were growing apart. We were growing up into teenagers and different people. But the only thing that we could agree on that we both wanted to do together at the same time was sit down and watch Star Trek. So it really led to us having or maintaining any kind of relationship. It, it, it was brilliant. And you're a part of that. So it's, it's been a thrill for me. And would, it, would you please just uh, tell my sister Eleanor that I win and I'm the best sibling <laughs> in your opinion? Eleanor, uh, uh, yes. Uh, uh, your brother is the best sibling and he, is, yes. uh, and he wins yes. all the time. Uh, he knows what he's talking about. Um, he's the smartest. Um, oh, yes. And, and the brightest. <gasps> Yes, and 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 he's and the most knowledgeable. So just just so you know, just FYI, uh, you know. Uh, my it. whole life has led to this moment. I finally win. <laughs> <laughs> and with this glorious victory, we must we we now adjourn this conclave. Onward. All right, All right. have at it. That episode of the Cinemania Society featured. Andre Luke Martinez, Andy Slack, Ethan Ireland, Zachariah Burks, Daniel Scribner, and Andrea Palladino. Produced by Ethan Ireland and Andy Slack. Mixing, mastering, and sound design by Ethan Ireland. Graphic design by Andy Slack. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com and check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review wherever you find us. 
mention us on social media, or find us on Ko-Fi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon, the Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films, and the like. So stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC. Oh, I shouldn't have to do all of this at my age, cleaning up bits of slime and keyboard and bug parts. Oh, I stepped, I stepped on a letter K. Oh, it is the cruelest of letters. Unacceptable. I shall vent my fury upon the furniture.